0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And,
0: and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies.
2: <laughs>
0: a goofy movie.
2: Going somewhere, Pop? Sure. Or. It's a vacation with me and my best buddy, Donald Duck. No, silly. With you. Ugh. It's Goofy. Give me a big smile. Stop goofing around. In an outrageous full-length animated feature. Uh, We'll spend some real quality time together. I think I'm going to be sick. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Come on, this is going to be fun. The story of a father who couldn't be closer. That's the spirit, Maxie. This is embarrassing to driving his son crazy. This is pathetic. Now, they're getting a crash course in becoming best friends.
3: It's Bigfoot!
2: Could you back up a bit, Mr. Foot? Uh, You're out of focus. This spring, one of Disney's favorite classic characters lands at theaters in the most hilarious... It's
4: the
5: Leaning Tower of Cheesa.
2: ...and hippest animated musical comedy ever
5: a little smoke
2: (laughs) a goofy movie morning son dad it's hard to be cool when your dad is goofy you look just like i did at your age please don't say that dad With us,
0: our longtime friend of the show and our running mate throughout our Disney series, calling in from Canada, where it has just gone 9am on Sunday, from New Frame Plus, Mr. Daniel Floyd. Hello again.
6: Hello, it's a delight to be here again to talk about this movie.
0: Yeah, this one in particular. I know that this movie is very special to Dan, and I always promised, it was always in the backstage chat, dude, if you ever do... Goofy movie. (laughs) I always promised we would get you on if we ever covered it. Though, frankly, we are covering it in order to get you on. And here you wax long and lyrical as to why you have such a soft spot for a goofy movie. At least we were. And then I started to really, really like a goofy movie the more I found out about it.
6: My day
5: has come.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And with us is the gentleman who kind of inadvertently set this one up by mentioning it offhand as a kind of, oh, we could do anything, you know, goofy movie. Uh, when we were batting around potential future show ideas to get him back on someone for whom a goofy movie also means a great deal to Longtime listeners may remember when we had him on to chat about his audio drama about the internet being switched off big data. It is a great pleasure to welcome back calling in from South Korea, where it has just gone one in the morning on Monday, Ryan Estrada.
7: I was just looking at my Twitter to see how many times I've said, when the hell is someone going to let me on their podcast to talk about a Goofy movie? And I got so embarrassed, I deleted half of them because I talk about it a lot. I've really been desperate for someone to let me talk about a Goofy movie. So thank you. So we are at the corner penthouse
0: of Goof Central at this point. And we are Sharon and I are, of course, calling in from England, where it's just gone 5 p.m. So to all, a good morning, good afternoon, and good night. <laughs> now let's talk Goofy. This was developed by our old frenemy, the embittered overlord Geoffrey of Katzenberg. Uh, it emerged in 1994, several years after a 78-episode cartoon called Goof Troop, about the titular Disney dog raising his son, Max. The show we found having never seen it before is wildly different in both animation style and tone to a goofy movie. This was effectively a standalone closer to that series, with Max now older and in high school. I didn't know this. when, like, I've seen this movie half a dozen times, and every time I did, I'm like, you know, I'd probably know these characters more if I'd seen A Goof Troop. Apparently not! <laughs> Apparently like, Dan's barely seen it. Ryan, are you a big fan
7: of Goof Troop? No, I can't say that I am, and thats I'll, I'll get to that when we talk about yeah. it. That's part of why I love this movie so much.
0: Yeah, we've got more on the stylistic differences coming up. Director Kevin Lima wanted to go beyond the slapstick cartoon series and to make Goofy an emotional character who could be hurt and frustrated and saddened and Max his son likewise there was fertile ground for this with a teenager trying to carve out his own identity and feeling stifled by an overly eager parent the plot of a strained relationship between parent and child being relieved by a road trip and bonding I found this out at like two in the morning today (laughs) was important to Jeffrey Katzenberg who had literally just experienced this scenario with his daughter So he says that they they had a much better relationship after that. So this was an unusually personal project for Jeff to get behind. Kevin Lima would go on to helm the sequel to the first live-action remake of 101 Dalmatians, 102 Dalmatians, which I suppose would be the second sequel to Cruella. But he's also directed one of my all-time favourite favorite Disney movies all-time favorite animated movies and just straight up all-time favorite movies The Astonishing Visual Feast of 1999's Tarzan which I might had has a really good Phil Collins soundtrack I made, the, <laughs> I made the mistake of back in when we did the show going no oh, I don't know well, I don't really like trash in the camp and I suppose you know it's I'm, I'm not as much of a fan of this as, as say like a lot of the other more uh, Howard Ashman type um Broadway stuff my goodness me the amount of how dare you say that about Mr. Collins? <laughs> And I was like, you know what, I do, I do like these songs, I think I may have, I just, uh... It rules, he rules, Phil Collins, A-OK, except for Brother Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Farmer had played Goofy for Disney since 1987. So I remember this was recording around 1994, uh, though apparently it took like two and a half years of actual recording from beginning to end. So I'm not entirely sure when they started this. And that included the uh, Goofy appearance on Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, when he goes, well, We're a dog! at the uh, end, which was incidentally the most recent show that we had Dan on for. Oh, yeah. Bill Farmer voiced him for 78, as I mentioned before, syndicated Goof Troop episodes. He was a a Goofy pro by this point. You know, he knew Goofy. Jeffrey Katzenberg, however, wanted Bill to make the voice sound more like a normal person. More like uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, figuring that that's what audiences coming to see Goofy in a movie entitled The Goofy Movie wanted to hear. Farmer was justifiably bewildered and went along with this plan for about a week and a half eventually appealing to Michael Eisner the CEO of Disney at the time and Roy E. Disney who agreed that Goofy sounding more like Goofy was a better plan in the long run which of course necessitated retakes of everything recorded so far there was also the issue of a single blasted dead pixel in the monitor used to capture the animation necessitating refilming Three quarters of the footage and a big delay on the initial planned release date of Thanksgiving 1994. This was an eye-opener for me. I'd never realized this is how they get an animated film onto film. They just set up a camera and they point it at a TV. And they go, okay, let's just film that. Yep, okay, that's good. And so if there's like a hair on the TV, that's going on the film. <clears throat> then came the big shakeup that we've spoken t- of before at Disney, where Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to be second in command only to Eisner. And he was promised the presidential position of Frank Wells... But after the tragic helicopter crash, which claimed Wells's life, the board elected not to give Overlord Jeff that position, resulting in Katzenberg quitting in a rage, suing Disney for breaking their promises, and starting his own Disney with Steven Spielberg and Shrek. Like,
6: now, quick, like I know we just only get like a cartoon image of. Katzenberg mm. from a distance, just through these like. What well, he keeps uh, doing this together.
0: cartoonish stuff.
6: Oh yeah, and that's the thing. Like he clearly he is not a complete goofball who is just inept and wrong all the time. Anytime he like is involved in these films, we we've seen plenty of cases oh, over yeah. the course of Disney history where he has made, he's been right and made correct calls that have made films better or like, uh, better than they would have been. But like, doesn't it always feel like? He is always guaranteed to be wrong about one major thing per film, yeah. <laughs> and if he gets, and if he like wins that argument, then the film is considerably worse.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's very fun to sort of pick on things like, and he wanted to get part of your world taken out of A Little Mermaid. Right. Uh, because uh, it, it seems nonsensical to us. But you're right, it was probably one of 99 decisions made that day and he had to fight on it, but the other 99 were probably pretty sound. And the the, the reason that Katzenberg sued Disney for quite so much was he was, you guys were in the, how do I say this without swearing, you guys were in the trash house... <laughs> Uh, with with uh, making Fox and Hound and then uh, um, the, the, the exodus of multiple animators to go with uh, Don Bluth. And I, I brought Disney back from the edge. Me and Mike, we did it. And we created this period of, of this golden age. And it's hard to argue with the results.
6: I don't want to go to bat for Katzenberg here. So many, enough stories have come out about just him seeming to just be incredibly petty. Mm. <laughs> like about lots of things that I'm... Uh, In the way that he handles business that I'm perfectly fine, like letting him remain under the bus, (laughs) any bus he remains thrown under. I'm just like, I just, I am delighted, well, delighted and scared at like the thought of like anybody who is working on a production, uh, any kind of film that Katzenberg has any sort of creative oversight on Has to know. All right, there will be of the 99 notes I receive, (laughs) one of these is going to be a time bomb, and I need to be able to decipher which one in this minesweeper game is the one that I have to hold my foot down and fight with like tooth and nail to block because that's going to be the one that will break my movie if I let him win. (laughs) Oh my
7: goodness. Well, on on this movie, I believe the one that uh, would have broken it that he kept fighting for is he wanted to fire Bill Farmer and replace him with Steve Martin. Oh, Uh, right, that's what the Steve Martin thing you. mentioned wow. was yeah, I have never
6: heard he, that one before that's bonkers Yeah,
7: you know, apparently like they he told they told Bill Farmer he wasn't going to do it and he like went into like training to prove like he it took oh, him a long goofy? time to prove that he could do that he could do <sighs> Goofy's voice with emotion and not just right. sound silly Oh. And so in this it, regard, he it's he almost
0: like Goof Troop stood against him because they could point at that and go, we don't want to make a movie like this, and that's all that Bill Farmer's yeah. good for.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas they could point at something like Parenthood and say, see, Steve Martin's Struggling Dad. This is a fantastic Ron Howard film, and I love that film, but it was absolutely right to keep Bill Farmer. It'd be, it'd be like replacing... Uh, Sterling Holloway as, as Winnie the Pooh with uh Robert Redford oh bother it just it, it it it's a different energy
6: absolutely like i understand the the thought process of fe- like feeling like okay we're making a theatrical film release now do we need to dial back on some very strong flavor aspect of something to appeal more widely like i hmm. get it on paper but i'm glad that, that 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 Katzenberg lost that argument too this time although i am like i would be fascinated to hear Steve Martin doing, like, a Goofy. I'd be super curious to hear that someday. Well, great. Let's have it thing. Let's see how I can screw the fourth one up. Hey, let's have five. Let's have six. Let's have a dozen and pretend they're donuts.
0: We say this, but we're following on from the Chris Evans as Buzz Lightyear movie. Chris Evans obviously 1,000 times better of a person and an actor than Tim Allen. But considering that movie was kind of bland, I do wonder what a Tim Allen-voiced version would have been like. I think, honestly, the closest we're going to get is uh, when Fantastic Mr. Fox by Wes Anderson came out. Mm, Mark Kermode, the British uh, uh, critic, complained that this was a Wes Anderson film that he could hear underneath the animation. So he heard George Clooney's voice and could just picture George Clooney, and he felt like this isn't an animated uh, film for kids. They won't like it because they don't like Wes Anderson films. Willow proved him wrong by loving it practically like at the age of four so barely
8: verbal i don't want to live in a hole anymore it makes me feel poor we
9: are poor but we're happy
8: come see come see. anyway the views are better above ground honey i'm seven non-fox years old now my father died at seven and a half i don't want to live in a hole anymore and i'm going to do something about it
0: it would be slightly disengaging to go and this was that time that Steve Martin played Goofy
6: <laughs> oh yeah no, it would have not been better for this film mm. now I'm just genuinely curious to hear that like it's like the audition tapes. Yeah.
0: It's kind of like the um, uh, the early versions of Shrek that was going to be... Chris Farley? Chris Farley, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, right. I think he got most of the character done and then um, it tragically died. And DreamWorks knew that this thing was going to probably be very popular and get sequels. So they wanted to keep the same Shrek on. So Mike Myers kept it.
4: Nothing like a fire and a noble romantic mission to warm the cockles of your heart. Yeah. I like my cockles room
2: temperature, thank you very much.
4: Hey, if you're not doing this for cockle warming, why are you doing it?
2: Simple. Fartwad gets his princess, I get what I want. Which is?
4: Now, come on, what do you want?
2: I don't have time to set it to music.
4: Oh, this is another one of those onion
2: things. No, this is one of those drop it and leave me alone things. Well, why don't you want to talk about it? Why do you want to talk about it? Well, why are you answering the question with a question? Why are you asking questions I don't want to answer? Why are you blocking? I'm not blocking. Then why do you have problems expressing your wants? I don't. I want you to shut up. See? No problem.
4: You're just displacing your anger. Believe me, it's properly placed. You're really mad at whoever did this to you? No one did anything to me. Yes, yes, yes. Someone hurt you so bad. Someone hurt you many years ago. Leave my parents out of this! through.
0: Oh, wow. I actually hadn't heard that footage before. If you're familiar with the Shrek musical, they definitely pick that storyline back up again regarding why Shrek is so guarded. He was cast out by his own parents. But that never appeared in any of the four Shrek films. Maybe in Shrek 5, he'll be a struggling father with teenage kids. Triplets, all of whom feel differently about being an ogre. Katzenberg had presided over the recovery of glory for the House of Mouse, kicking the animation team into gear with ruthless efficiency until they stopped making The Black Cauldron and started making The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin and The Lion King. So Eisner, whose health was suffering at the time, considered a goofy movie to be a contractual obligation rather than something to be proud of like... Pocahontas or The Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. So when Jeffrey left, it was like, oh, we've still got this movie that's supposed to be coming out later this year. I guess we can still do it. And thus, a Goofy movie got the same treatment that Mars Needs Moms would 16 years later when Disney shut down their recently acquired studio Robert Zemeckis' Image Movers Digital. Uh, Goofy got an April 1995 release, pushed forward from Thanksgiving 1994. It got no fanfare, next to zero marketing. That's what happens when you just... It's it's called sending a movie out to die, I think. Didn't the rescuers Mm -hmm. down under get barely any marketing because they realised that Home Alone was going they knew Home Alone had definitely killed it within the first weekend. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you still hold a torch for that one as well. You like the mice.
6: I do. Like, not nearly as strong as I do for this one, but I definitely hold it. That's like, okay, that one's solid.
0: Yeah. It would have wound up as forgotten as Disney's burnout-style PS3-era racer split second, only as with Muppets Christmas Carol, which was similarly ignored in theatres, a goofy movie found a welcoming audience that latched onto it fervently at home Video. Also, in an act of strange providence, director Kevin Lima would go on to direct the extremely charming Enchanted with Amy Adams, which has always seemed like a riposte from Disney at Shrek's, and thus Katzenberg's, easy skewering of their brand. And somehow... Ryan was able to get hold of Mr. Lima himself and pass on a question that we had in the early stages of studying up for this, and Kevin was nice enough to record for us a solid four-minute answer and send it in, and here it is.
8: Hey, guys. Kevin Lima here, the director of A Goofy Movie, and um, you asked me a question. You wanted to know whether or not it was intentional that we change the style and tone of A Goofy Movie from the Goof Troop television show, and it was absolutely intentional. You know, you have to sustain interest in a different way when you're making a feature film than when you're making a 22-minute, you know, episode, And in that, we wanted to, the main thing we wanted to do really was, was deepen the emotional qualities of the characters and their relationships. So absolutely was intentional. Some of the things we changed were things like, you know, Max is older in our movie. And that really had to do everything with story because it pivoted around Max having a crush on Roxanne. And we felt like the Max from Goof Troop was a bit too young to do that. It also gave us a chance to go from a very cartoony Max.
2: Oh, I'm sorry, Max. Ah, it's okay, Peach. Same thing every summer. Your dad takes you guys someplace hot like Hawaii. My dad can't afford to go anywhere. <laughs> if I had the bucks, I'd buy him a real vacation.
8: With a very cartoony voice to a more naturalistic voice on Max, which we thought we also needed in order to to sustain that sort of like 70 minute format. It would have been very tiring, we thought, to actually listen to a Max that was all up and high. and So we wanted to pull it more into a natural tone that would, could sustain the entire film.
2: Morning, son! Came to see if you had any dirty clothes. Well, there they are, help yourself. Max, thought we talked about this. Yeah, look, I'm sorry, Dad. I'll, I'll take care of it later. Oh, what's the big rush? I'm running late.
8: You know, one of the big changes is that we don't um, highlight Peg, Pistol, or their cat Waffles. And we tried. We talked a lot about how to keep, you know, how to keep them in the story. But as we concentrated down more on Max and Goofy we didn't really give ourselves the ability to intercut between the two families. And I guess they could have gone on the vacation with, uh, with Pete and PJ. But then we were also talking about, we're doing, a, we're doing a story about fathers and sons, and let's concentrate down on that. That was where we had to put all our emphasis and not distract the story by, by bringing in other, other elements. And then, of course, there's always that question about... Uh, waffles right like Pete's a cat and he has a pet cat it's kind of like that big conundrum is Pete a cat is Goofy a dog you know Goofy hangs around with Mickey who has a dog Pluto who's a real dog so it's always this big question which has been uh sort of amusing I don't think there's really an answer for it to be quite honest with you anyway I hope I answered your question really love that you guys are doing this thanks so much uh the attention the project uh, A Goofy Movie has been getting lately has just been overwhelming. And it really, it really moves me. And I'm so incredibly proud that we created something that has, uh, has lived on. In fact, it's become kind of like a cult classic. So thanks for doing this. I can't wait to listen to your, uh, to your podcast. Thanks a lot for asking. Hope you got the answers you wanted. Take care.
0: Dan, did you listen to this one yet?
6: I did. That was delightful. It
0: was, yeah. It was lovely to hear from him. So, yeah, I'm very, very happy to, 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 to
7: feature that there.
1: That was awesome, Ryan. Thank you so much for yeah,
7: sorting that out. great job. Of course. Any excuse to become best friends with Kevin Lima? <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. Thank you so
0: much, Kevin Lima. And if you're listening, we hope we can do your film justice and explore it with this pair of lifelong lovers of your work. Also, on a side note, I'm going to move our Tarzan show that we recorded with Dan back in, like, 2017 all the way up to the front of the feed, just in case Kevin and or his spouse, Brenda Chapman, the director of Pixar's Brave, would like to hear quite how much I personally love Tarzan. The head of animation on Tarzan himself was Glenn Keane, someone we've mentioned uh, several times before throughout the uh, 90s. His work animating Tarzan, the movement, the... um, Soulful way he connects with Jane is absolutely mesmerizing. I adore Keen's work in
6: this. I do um, too. He's one of the best guys alive doing yeah. this, doing this job. More
0: recently. This nearly 30-year-old film now has been unveiled as being surprisingly beloved by a specific subsection of society. Surprising for white people because whether intentionally or not many challenges that Max and Goofy face in this movie are very applicable to black family culture. We will definitely be citing some of what we found over the past few days but there are black experts who are far more qualified to go into fine detail on this so I recommend the 2017 Vice article, the enduring legacy of Disney's black millennial classic, a goofy movie that's written by Austin Williams and the fantastically clarifying YouTube presentation of Laron Reedus, a goofy movie, a staple of black culture.
9: That's why in regards to my rewatches of a goofy movie on home video, as I grew older, I was less invested in what Max did to impress Roxanne and more invested in how he had the tools to be able to pull it off. Because let's just be honest readers, as black folk, specifically black millennial adolescents, hijacking the last assembly of the school year with your A.V. club friends just to perform the latest single of a 90s pop star for your high school crush isn't one of the things that we'd actively decide to do. And that's partly due to the fact that some of us never had an A.V. club. But also thanks to how hand-in-hand black millennial youth was with the parental discipline of acting a fool, we never really entertained the ideal of doing it in the first place, especially if we didn't have teachers that knew the importance of their students being allowed to express themselves. And that theory is shot down to the ground even further once you take into consideration the long-lasting effects of redlining that kept said funding from even being considered in most public school systems within previously red and yellow areas. And then you also have to remember that this takes place in the mid-90s when predominantly black schools across the country decided to save money by cutting budgets in their programs for the arts, thanks to the the at-the-time modern-day result of the same discriminatory actions of the past. That's why for a lot of black youth who timely watched and grew up with this, the first act of a goofy movie is a power fantasy, a way of allowing us a way of doing things otherwise impossible by living vicariously through a character that has the means to accomplish such expressions via proper school funding and doesn't have to worry about being disciplined by their school or their parents from the decisions they make because it's not there. And the fact that the decision was made with something already black-coded in the universe of the story helps with the immersion. Because if any black kid did what Max did in real life, proper funding or not, we all know that we wouldn't be Max in this situation. We'd
0: be PJ. Seriously, this 34-minute video is fantastic, and I owe most of my cultural insight in this episode to watching Laron Reedus. As well as the slick mockumentary of the fake making of the blackest Disney movie of all time that is Season 4, Episode 8 of Atlanta. And I will put links to at least the first two of those in this episode show
8: notes. I was at that last screening. It was the Bigfoot stuff that put him over the edge.
4: They'd added it without his knowledge. He'd wanted Goofy and Max to wander into a thrift store and discover Huey Newton's rattan throne. And once they sat in it, Max would finally understand what Goofy had been fighting to make him understand all along. Instead, they took out the thrift store and the throne and put in that Bigfoot bit. It's like they were saying, what you were after, your message, is a fantasy. As elusive and unreal as Bigfoot.
6: If I could throw in one more uh, creator. Uh, There's a creator on YouTube named uh, Toonrific Tariq, who uh, does a lot of uh, animation, like, uh, reviews and discusses a whole lot of uh, animated films and shows, who has also done a video on a goofy movie, which is wonderful. I, like, Toonrific Tariq is great at really getting to the emotional core of uh, a lot of these uh, films and things that he covers, and it's a great video.
0: This was a collab with Awkwardly Animated and Man of a Thousand Thoughts, whose voice you'll also hear in this clip.
5: I think my fascination with this animation has a lot to do with my fascination with the animation on, like, Bebe's kids, right? Not only is it done really well, but it's... domesticated? Like, it's modern. That's not as normal as you think for 2D animated films of this caliber. It's things we've seen animated before, but just, like, not to this scale. Look at this motel, the diner, their neighborhood, the highway. Even this hallway at the school with the dried-out colors used. Don't nobody wanna be there, it's perfect. Plus you can definitely tell different artists did different shots. The touches shine through in the eyes of a detailed animation fan, but it's unified enough to where it doesn't become a distraction. I love the depth of field too. The blurred backgrounds, the dolly shots is all there. And I'll just say it, animation looks so much better when it's shot on film. And not when it's cleaned up 50 years later with gross colors and shoved into the Disney vault like when it's in its most raw form. No matter what you try or do on the computer, it'll never look like this again. Just a brief explanation, cartoons used to be drawn, inked, and painted by hand on these cell sheets. When a cell was done, they'd put it under a camera and take a picture of the drawing over the background and repeat. But now it varies on the technique, but ultimately it still all ends up on a computer somehow. With it, you get the HD, the sharp, crystal clear image with poppy colors. But without film, you lose the grit, the dirt, the sweat. These colors will always look better to me projected on a big screen compared to something that just looked like you dipped it in a pile of light brights.
10: A goofy movie tackles growing up and wanting to become your own person in a way that I think no other movie really hits right. Max is made to be a typical teenager that many can see themselves in but he does have that sitcom trope of the goofy dad that you would think breaks relatability but it actually doesn't. Goofy does act in a manner that annoys anyone in this predicament. Being forced to go on a vacation you didn't want to go on, having to spend time with your family not on your own terms. You easily can get Max's anger towards everything which makes you get where he comes comes from in this. He's forced away from his friends and even potential love interests after he pretty much was able to make a big name for himself. Standout was basically his coming out moment. Bear with me a little bit. Many in my generation and even Tariq's tend to discover themselves around the time they get to high school. Usually around freshman or sophomore year. This can include coming out as gay, bi, pan or so on. Now with Max we know he's definitely not a senior or even a junior so we can infer that he's either a freshman or a sophomore. In that time it's very likely he hasn't really made a name for himself to really stand above everybody else. So his moment in the auditorium basically was his big moment to let it be known that this is him and this is how he wants to be seen. This honestly applies to so many teenagers of different creeds and colors. Be you LGBT+, Black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, Indian, so on, you tend to want people to see you as you want them to see you. This moment here resonates so easily because it's saying stand above the crowd. Shout it out loud, who you are, this is you. It kinda even goes into the idea of this being a positive portrayal of black culture, with how it shows teenagers acting towards each other with dap ups in such a casual manner. That's honestly the great power of this movie. It hits in ways that couldn't be appreciated until later. It connects by honestly being a bit more realistic towards what goes on in real life. Now let's finally let Ryan and Dan talk on this one. The first question
0: I'm gonna ask doesn't usually feature on this show because Sharon and I tend to get right down to the business of deconstruction. But this one is important considering who we have on and their history with the film. And that is, what was your experience growing up with this? And we will start with Dan, because I know that by his own admission, Ryan can talk about this for three hours straight without taking a breath. So, Dan first, then Ryan, and then we'll move on to our first talking point, which will be, we're going in roughly chronological order, so it's Max at home. Max as he's dreaming, and thus, like, sort of how it informs upon his new, the new version of his character. So, Dan, you'd have been how old when you saw this?
6: Uh, Let's see, probably in probably would have been around like fifth or sixth grade or so when this came out. And I don't remember what age that was. Eleven or twelve. But I uh like I saw it in the home release after it came out just like I remember watching it at home with is some cousins we had staying with us at the time and uh enjoying it a great deal as a kid just as a fun romp in the way that you enjoy something to, like as a child as the, loved the music, loved all the just comedy in it. Mm. Um but this the thing about great movies that you enjoy as a kid, like they're the ones that as you keep getting older you keep getting more and more out of that you don't look back on and find like, ah, well, that that does not hold up as well as I mm-hmm. thought it did. Like the every time I've gone back to a goofy movie for the rest the remainder of my life, the second half, second, two thirds, whatever of my life, I get more out of it each time. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I keep seeing like creators and writers and directors and other filmmakers and showrunners. I have an immense respect for citing this movie as an influence.
0: My theory was that uh, it's, if you were around about Max's age or maybe a little younger when you first saw the movie, you were watching it from Max's point of view, but now you're watching it from Goofy's point of view and starting to like either think about or you've already, you're getting families of your own. So the, the, like the second half of the movie comes sliding into place and you're like, oh my God. So that would be why um, millennials in particular really have a soft spot for this one.
7: Ryan, yeah. Well, I I was 14 when this movie came out, and I was not the the kid that just like let's watch a fun movie. I was the kid that like read the trades. Like I, my mom's going to the mall. I'm like, drop me off at Walden Books. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up Animation Magazine and read oh, that, man. and then I'm gonna go home and go on the boards. And like this was like pre-internet. Like this was like AOL. Like you gotta like. You couldn't just like look on Twitter and see like what what the upcoming movies are. Like we're talking just leaking stuff that like if their bosses knew what the what the internet was, they'd be fired. And I'm learning what's going on. And I I was very upset about something that kind of changed Disney forever, that happened a year or two before that, called the Return of Jafar. Mm. Disney had for its entire run been like no sequels. We need to protect the sanctity of these films. And then someone's like, hey, why don't we just throw the first three episodes of the Aladdin TV show on video and call it a movie? And they did. And it made so much money that it made almost as much profit as Aladdin. (sighs) And they're like, oh, we don't have to care anymore. This is great. And they decided we're going to open Disney Movie Tune Studios. That went through multiple names, but their whole thing was they're, we're just going to make extremely low-budget sequels to things, mostly video, some of it caught in theaters, and we didn't even know what was to come yet. We They were going to make Beauty and the Beast, Enchanted Christmas, they were going to make Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, the one where Cinderella's a time traveler, and they're going to make so much garbage, but the first one, after Return of Jafar, they announced a goofy movie. And I'm reading about this, and I'm like, This is what you've done when your starting point is aladdin now you're gonna make a low budget sequel to goof troop which is the worst show on the disney afternoon and the worst show on saturday morning even though they're technically the same show even though they're completely like the two different versions the daytime and Saturday morning are like Completely different tones and all oh, right and style because like they had different teams working on them They didn't bother to interact and like see which was it, better like, what the other doing. Uh, I guess that the daytime the daily one was better I felt but I hated both of them so much as a kid. I'm afraid to rewatch because I hated them so
0: much. See, I thought when... Before I... My first and, I think, only contact with Goof Troop was actually the Super Nintendo game. So, I think I assumed, considering it was made in 1992, Goof Troop... This is going to be Goofy and his family. This is Disney, much like with dinosaurs, going, we need a Simpsons. How can we do that? So we get Goofy, Goofy's wife, Goofy's little son, who's a a little bit of a a rad kid with a skateboard, Goofy's daughter, who's uh, anxiety-ridden, and maybe a a cute baby who bangs him on the head with a saucepan. That is not Goof Troop at all. It's just Goofy
7: and Max. There's no Troop. Yeah, well, (laughs) And it's not the Simpsons. Yeah, it was originally going to be Goofy as a scout leader. And right. Max and his friends were the troop. Oh. And good then room. they realized oh, they wait literally that. Yeah, we literally already did that with the Junior Woodchucks. Uh right. so they changed it and they were too lazy to change the name because they really didn't I I really don't think they cared too much when they were making Goof Troop. So as a kid, I'm looking at all of this. You're gonna take this this show that I hate and you're gonna make a sequel to it. With Disney's D team, Disney Movie Tune Studios, with like a third of the budget of any of your other films, and you're getting this first first-time director who's never directed anything, like not let alone a feature film. And I was convinced that this movie was going to be the worst thing that had ever been done. And I was like, you know, as a kid, like a bad movie. You know, well, I guess it's still nowadays like people who love superhero movies. Still, if, if a movie isn't what they wanted, they think it's the end of the world. But to me, this was going to be the end of the world. And then I watched a Goofy movie and it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and it changed how I look at art. And everything I've done since has been based on that because I re- I'm trying to figure out, like, how is this good? And I realized, oh, someone cared. That's all it takes is for someone to be like, there are no expectations here. That we have the tiniest budget, we have the, the worst source material, but if we care, we can make something good. And I have taken that to heart the rest of my life, trying to make things good by caring about them. As a matter of fact, uh, when I assigned my agent, they asked me a question about what inspires me, and then eight minutes later, they're like, Ryan, why don't you talk about your own work instead of a goofy movie? And I'm like, <laughs> that's great. I should do that. So that's, that's my take on a goofy movie.
0: Well, that's a hell of a way to start off. Uh, let's let's talk about how that caring about your characters actually manifests itself in the movie, because uh, we're going to be talking about Max and Goofy primarily throughout this. I mean, we, we could talk about other characters, but really it is about these two, how they treat each other, how they regard each other, and that evolving over the course of the uh, film, but also how especially how Max comports himself because he starts the movie kind of different to how he ends the movie, which is otherwise known as an arc. So we begin with a sequence that I know Ridley Scott sat and with a, a, Pen and paper going right. So Maxima starts in the wheat, and he's (laughs) brushing his gloved hand across it as he's sort of uh, imagining, uh, seeing uh, his his bride to be in Elysium. It's 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 a weird coincidence (laughs) that uh, we begin with that in particular. And uh, Max is having a dream about Roxanne, uh, a girl who I again when i've seen this in the past i was like well this is going to be like the little redhead girl from charlie brown like the girl he's never really been able to pluck up the courage to talk to but as it turns out they get on quite well but in his dream it turns into a nightmare and i can only describe it as he becomes a weird goofy like his teeth blast out of his head and become huge and buck teeth and uh he his hands and feet become large and clumsy and all of the negative aspects of his father just explode out of him and, uh, uh, you know, his manifestation of Roxanne in the dream shrieks and recoils away from him as though he is uh, Lon Chaney wolfing out. This next bit is going to be really harsh and I have to be very careful. I didn't talk about it in the original recording, but it is absolutely relevant to the modern day black reading of a Goofy movie. Max's father was originally created by Walt Disney Studios as a racist caricature, initially named Dippy Dog. He evolved into Dippy the Goof, then the Goof, then Goofy. There is a 1935 excerpt on his design intention by creator Art Babbitt, which can be easily found online, and that I will not be reading here. But while it does express the positive traits that he is a well-meaning fellow who will always try to help another, he is incapable of succeeding due to his own vaporous brain and clumsiness, the N-word is employed in this memo. Ergo, whether intentionally or not on the part of the 90s production team, Max's nightmare here can be read as deeply rooted anxiety of a modern African-American teenager's fear of their own inability to escape the role afforded to their ancestors by the white hegemony at the time of Goofy's inception as a Disney character. There is unavoidable, deeply uncomfortable intention behind Goofy's physical characteristics which have maintained to this day, though clearly not out of some sinister racist agenda on Disney's part. They are well-meaning and clumsy. Which is why their mascot shouldn't be Mickey.
7: It, I think it sets up really quickly that it's not just that he's embarrassed of his father, he's embarrassed that he's going to become his father. and that I guess that comes out of the fact that he kind of realizes that he already is
6: it really communicates a lot with Are there any words? there aren't any words anywhere in that other than the uh, yuck I guess at the end of the dream uh, and yuck. It, like <laughs> and I love that that's like the big crescendo horror moment is not just even the physical transformation which was already very wolfman scary but just mm-hmm. that it he can't suppress the stupid sounding laugh that his dad does yeah but yeah but it does communicate so much about just all of Max's insecurities that he has as a teenager, instantly relatable ones too. Just like the, I am embarrassed about how I am appearing to other people, especially someone who I'm obsessed with right now, who is my world. Mm. And I have this terror about looking stupid to them. And we immediately can see and fully understand that Max's inner vision of looking stupid is like the worst possible scenario is acting like his dad does in front of someone who could see him. Yeah. I'd
0: say one of the strengths of the movie uh, is that like me you could walk in there going I've never seen Goof Troop, but I do know Goofy. Disney have at least maintained Goofy being one particular type of character for most of the time since he's been, uh, he first appeared on screen. This is why Radical, we've got to rebrand it as something new and fresh that the kids would like. It's always a gamble. Retiring Apu Nehasapima Petalon makes sense, although the makers of The Simpsons were crappy about it. I'd say Marvel's Punisher definitely needs reshaping, but what I'm talking about is a more shallow chasing of trends to make a character hip with the kids rather than a deeper understanding of troublesome cultural implications. If anything, it's just the new coquification of Goofy as you make him speak Fugified,
1: like... Goofy, you might say.
0: Yeah, I was getting to that. <laughs> as you make him speak like Steve Martin and then maybe you return to, to Goofy classic and make millions. But Sharon noted that in Max's head, the version of him that he wants to be... Like, you know, he's like, Hey, baby, I'm I'm flying on fleek and all various other cool rad things from the 90s. How do you do, fellow kids? And skateboarding and, like, wearing big sunglasses, backwards baseball cap. That is poochie max's ideal self is
6: a max by committee (laughs) i thought it really is like the same shades and and hat combo isn't it yeah
1: but that's that's a great starting point for what the the teenage experience that max is representing is being a teenager is about starting with a self that doesn't have a defined identity and using the way you bounce off other people to work out what the outlines of that identity are because that then gives you a structure in which you can work to construct yourself. Mm
6: -hmm. Part of the beauty of this movie is that it works significantly better because it is starring Goofy, a character who you would probably not immediately think of as the kind of character to put in sort of like a parent like father son drama communication type thing because it helps to balance the scales a little bit on whose side you should be feeling on like it I could see in a lot of films like this if you've got like a father and a son who are having difficulty communicating even if you will be able to relate to how the teenager feels being embarrassed by their parents and things like that for a lot of us that is a phase that as you get older you start to have more like understanding of who your parents were you don't feel that necessarily like that same kind of Uh, revulsion and fear about being like even seen with them with friends or anything like that like so it would be something that for a lot of us it would be harder to relate maybe to Max's sort or maybe we would relate to Max's uh, feeling of embarrassment about his father and looking like his father but it would be something that we might think that he is like in retrospect wrong about or like that is just a part of his life that he's going through. But if your father is literally goofy, the dog, the (laughs) comic, like that is actually an amped up, much harder thing to deal with if you are in this specific phase of life that Max is going through. that's a pretty understandable fear and problem. You can very much understand how this poor little kid is
7: feeling. And this has to be like one of the only Disney features that takes place like in in the modern day. It's not in hundreds of years ago in France. It's not in a fairy tale world. It, it even though everybody's a dog, like it feel like especially as a kid, I'm like this feels like my high school. This feels like my town, and just putting Goofy, the character from the 1930s, into this situation, uh, just immediately makes him stand out. But I, I love that even though he's in there, like they still make him a really good dad. Like everything he does is he's being a good dad, and so you can feel that like you immediately feel feel like in your soul like how as a kid especially how embarrassing that would be to have your dad doing all of this stuff and then just but what makes goofy like endearing in it is that he has no shame in that he is who he is and so when you realize max also max is never actually cool like you mentioned he's pooching it he's trying to be cool he's doing what he thinks is cool but what makes people like him is how confident he is doing it and then, like, as soon as he's not on that stage, like he gets awkward and dorky again. And I think that's the kind of connection he has with Roxanne is that she doesn't care that he's awkward and goofy. So yeah, just that that weird balance of how they stand out and when they're confident, and when they're not, just fascinates me.
1: The fact that Goofy is a really good dad, I think, is is a significant part of why this is a Goofy movie and not a Mickey movie or a Donald movie. And it helps in the balancing of the perspectives. Like you said, there are many ways in which we can empathise with Max's predicament, but there's also the facets that help us to connect with Goofy's perspective as well. And I feel like if this had been about Mickey... Mickey's the paragon, Mickey's the one who he's the the, the face of the company never gets anything wrong that would be a very different father-son relationship Donald is this constant ball of feathers and anxiety, that would have been a very different relationship between father and one assumes nephews in both cases actually, Mickey has nephews too doesn't Mm. he? Um, It's a
0: regular occurrence with cartoon characters, they don't want to like see tie the knot on that one
1: (laughs) So they can have but, nephews. But
0: they can have sisters
7: who did, or yeah, brothers who did.
1: Indeed. Goofy's the only one who was allowed to get down, apparently. Mm. Um, yeah, they,
7: all, they all have three nephews. It's all, yeah, got to it's all come with three. Mm,
1: indeed. Um, but yeah, so so having that insight into Goofy being the chill one, the one who people ridiculed in the past, but who nevertheless has managed to uh to, to form a relationship with his child which is easygoing and yes, strained at the moment, but like Alex said about coming back to this in later life and seeing it more from Goofy's perspective, looking back on Uh, certainly in my case looking back on my teenage years I can remember where the the, the fault lines in my relationship with my parents appeared at roughly what age and then at roughly what age I'd managed to work through them by and started to to sort of reconnect that and then my sister went through exactly the same thing about a year and a half behind me so (laughs) I'm pretty firmly convinced that it is an age thing.
2: I look just like my dad that scares me to death. I'm afraid I'm gonna wake up one day and start acting like my dad, you know? I mean, I love him, but he is a goober, man. All dads are goobers. They are, you become a goober. I don't
6: know why. Life just breaks you, man. One day you just go, screw it. I don't
5: care what people think of me anymore. I'm gonna wait for the paper boy in my underwear. I'm gonna go to the mall in a Bermuda
6: jumpsuit. I'm gonna walk around the house in a robe that won't quite close. Who wants sausage with breakfast? I'm fixing sausage. Dad, put some shorts on your goober.
4: They've been laughing since I can remember, but they're not gonna laugh anymore. No more Maxi the Geek, no more Goof of the Week like before.
2: No more algebra tests till September,
4: no more looking at losers like him. No more heaven
2: to cheat No more mystery meat No more gym No more gym No more gym No more gym, no more
4: gym. Gonna move to the mall I'm Gonna live in the pool I'm Gonna talk to Roxanne And not feel like a fool Cause after today I'm gonna be cruising. After today she'll be I've been losing, finding the right thing to say, but things will be going my way, after today. She looked right through me, and who could blame her? I need a new me, plus some positive proof that I'm not just a goof, and after today, after
2: on my butt
4: I've got less than an hour And when this is ended I'll either be famous Or you'll be suspended was the day after today
0: so when Max gets to school what his his plan is like they, they, they do a sort of a, a mountain town style sing-song as they get to school like he's re- like everyone's all the kids are really excited that' they, it's, it's basically a school's out for summer by Alice Cooper the kids are just looking forward to just like just get this over with and then we are free and the the idea of the prospect of a long summer ahead of you is intoxicating to a kid the only Uh, the feeling of similar intensity being when it's the last day of summer and you've got to go back to school. I remember waking up on those days was just, I dreaded that I was like, am I dreaming? Is this actually the day? But Max, while he's very, very shy of the little redhead girl, uh, Roxanne, Wants to do something that most of us just wouldn't even dream of, which is to put on this what you could now say after having the the, the film coming out Napoleon Dynamite style <laughs> dance scenario, but with really good production values, like like Hollywood level, uh, like the kind that you would norm- like in those days get John Landis to film for three million dollars, and effectively dress up like his favorite recording artist Powerline, and. I suppose gate crash the, uh, the the farewell ceremony where just uh, it's specifically a ceremony where all the audience of kids are bored and everyone's just sort of going through the motions. And Stacy, who is Roxanne's friend, gets up there and is. Uh, kind of sneered at, and uh, by the way, Stacy's voiced by um, the girl who played Six in Blossom,
6: Jenna Von Oy.
0: Jenna Von Oy, that's the one, yeah. Uh, which hence why she has a very kind of Blossom hat and and long shirt type uh, look to her. But Max waits until. The only genuinely detestable character I think that Wallace Shawn has ever played. Like I like Vizzini in um, uh, Princess Bride, and you know, damn white love Rex, and uh, you know, my dinner with Andre. Forget about it. But this principle is six seconds into his speech when Max launches his gate crashing, "I am going to rock this joint," type maneuver, which is antithetical to his social anxiety. And everyone loves it. Like against all odds, even though everything seems to go wrong, apart from the teachers and authority figures, everyone loves it. And the teachers over well, specifically the principal overreact like crazy. Can we talk about that?
7: Gonna end up in the electric chair. Yeah, that's that's the line that
0: made all three of us go, Whoa! <laughs> Uh, That he uses very specifically charged language. Dressed like a gang member. He drove the uh, kids into a riotous frenzy. And then says, too goofy, in all seriousness, not even in just being facetious, that his son will be executed for his crimes. Future, numerous, and imminent. Uh, if goofy does not somehow perform some kind of magical parental act and uh, and and get hold of this wild child which is uh, well it's very one-sided and it's taking it incredibly far in terms of what max actually did which was it's almost like if he'd just asked permission then the AV club may have been able to put on like this little show. But uh, it, it kind of would have been a bit too corporate if it'd done that. The fact that it's uh, a little bit guerrilla gives him that edge, and the kids respect that. The fact that the uh, uh, headmaster is affronted at that.
6: But That's true. If the headmaster had, like, introduced Max's yes, act, then would have just like, depleted oh. the entire thing.
0: Yeah, it would be almost like uh, getting on those people who tell you, hey, smoking is whack. And uh, you'd be like, I'm going to go away from school and start smoking. <laughs> but, but, yeah, this is one of the things that, that set off little alarm bells in um, young black viewers watching. Because, and I really don't want to misquote any of this or misinterpret any of this. The juxtaposition is of Max, who is now really in trouble and is very scared about what will happen with uh, his dad, PJ, who is really scared about what will happen with his dad, and Paulie Shaw's character, what's his name again? Bobby Zimaruski. Bobby Zimaruski, Leaning Tower of Chisa, (laughs) perfectly cast, who is not the least bit worried about what will happen to him because... In the eyes of the young black viewers watching, he's white, and he's not going to get that badly into trouble. There is a generational issue here, which I, I'm going to guess dates back to the civil rights movement when white people stopped being freaking insane in entirety and said, "Let's let's just yeah, maybe you can go to school and be treated sort of like human beings," and so and ethos got hammered into young black kids who ended up as the parents of the young black millennial kids, don't mess around. Don't act the fool. Almost like white people will suddenly decide, oh, you know what? We gave you these whites. We're going to take them right back. And because you have no power in society, you can't say anything about it. So suddenly this started, you know, making them feel, wow, I, I kind of feel like Max. Obviously not all of them, but enough that it has become a repeated motif in, oh, hey, you know what? I totally related to this film in in black viewers in more recent times.
6: I really loved seeing that. I've seen some of these articles and some of these, like, seen this uh, just mentioned uh, more in recent years, and it's just really delightful to see, especially given how so much of pop culture, and especially, like, the pop culture that was targeted at me, was just completely ignoring, ignoring or using or like exploiting black culture to appeal to people more like me. I feel
3: we should rastafy my 10% or All right, stop.
6: Coming out of Disney was something that a black kid of that who was around my same age could see some of themselves in and feel like familiar and like take as something that like this is something that is also for me. Like I find that really wonderful.
7: Hmm. And I love the, the – just the filmmaking in that scene of the phone call with the principal to, sh- to show that it's not just a misunderstanding. Like you see Goofy's emotional state. Like when he, you cut between Principal Mazer, like with the, the blinds uh, projecting the light, making him look really creepy. And you cut mm-hmm. to Goofy like it looks like he's having a panic attack. Like his eyes are darting. He's having trouble breathing. He puts his hand on his chest and it does that like – Every time there's a, a new line, it cuts in, and I'm closer. And the the colors being drained from the the film, it could, it just gets grayer and grayer until the blue light special kicks in, fills you with blue to give them that idea. It's just the the amount of filmmaking that went into that one little, like just a phone conversation that could have been so simply done to to give to make you really feel what Goofy's feeling.
1: Hmm. And it really does frame his fears about this nonsense that he's being fed about Max's behavior uh, and how 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 overblown the principle is in in sort of outlining how how terrible these uh, shenanigans were that what goofy is really afraid of at this point is letting max down through his failure is of max ending up in trouble because he didn't parent him properly not mm. because of anything that is inherently bad about max
6: yeah it's not the it's not goofy's fear as a parent that they are drifting apart although like sure goofy wants to be in max's life and is and is sad at them just like at Max. Just like I imagine, all parents feel some of that, like feeling like, okay, my kid is growing up and kind of becoming their own person, and that is going to just inevitably create a bit more, just sort of distance between us, and that is a hard thing to go through. But I don't feel like if that was all that was going on here, Goofy would happily work through that on his own, and uh, and just proudly see Max grow, like coming into his own as a person. Like it's. This is actually really important that Goofy is getting really skewed and complete information here. Because like, at a time when he and his son don't really have good communication between each other anymore, Goofy can't get Max's side of the story because they don't communicate well anymore. And he's just been primed by Pete's sort of fear-mongering about what happens if you aren't raising your kid right before you know it. They're off, like, just completely going down a wrong and dangerous path that's going to ruin their own lives. And then Mac, and then Goofy gets this information, just very distorted information and one-sided, mm-hmm. and that just completely puts the fear in him. And he can't really communicate with Max about it, given like just where their relationship is at right now. So he falls instead to what he knows and what work within his experience is something that builds a connection between father and son. It's not the right answer, but it it is a completely relatable and understandable one. And I love that. So much about why this movie works is the sincerity in the performance from every character involved. Like Even if these are characters who are from sort of just a Disney daytime TV show, and it's Goofy who is a slapstick character at heart, when you actually have the characters involved sincerely performing and acting and Ah, uh, living in emotions that feel true to who those characters are. it like you believe it as and you get engaged in that drama, like as a uh, audience member. And this movie works so well because, despite it being about Goofy and his kid, he like those real emotional moments that these characters would go through are felt sincerely, shown sincerely. And the film, like does not shy away or flinch from living in those really uncomfortable or scary moments or and making those characters stay in that space for a little while. Hmm.
0: The fact that the principal goes so far in the whole electric chair thing... It allows kids in the audience to go, this sounds a little spurious. Because, like, if we've all, well, depending on how much of a troublemaker we are, we've all had the whole Bart Simpson, this kid's a troublemaker, got ADHD, da 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 da, -da, pretend you're normal. No, Sharon's shaking her head. Okay, maybe it was just me. But, um. No,
1: no, (laughs) I'm the outlier, believe
0: me. Several things are at play. The principle's going way over the top. Goofy is immediately taking responsibility and caring. The Simpsons that I mentioned earlier was notably really high quality for especially its first few seasons because Homer cared. So he he messed up all the time, but he kept trying to make amends. The, the more Homer became this monster who was just out of control and, and stupid and, and didn't care about anything or anyone and, and just most episodes ended in him careering downhill screaming attached to a cherry picker or something like that, It became... Well, you could lift out of it because that sense of drama and that sense of stakes, emotional stakes, had depleted. And notably, all the best episodes of The Simpsons that happened in the 21st century have some kind of emotional punch to them. They're noteworthy for that. And so to that end... This, after Goof Troop completely failed to be even vaguely Simpsons-like for 78 episodes, I am guessing, because I'm not watching all 78 to find out, suddenly you've got some of the finest qualities of the better Simpsons episodes already there. It's what Bart says about your half-assed under-parenting was a lot more fun than your half-assed overparenting. And Goofy wants to use his whole ass at this point. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, uh, the the kids can recognize that Goofy's trying. And the kids can also see that Max... <sighs> I mean, as there's a slight ludicrousness in the scope of his plan. Like, this is the one thing I'm going to do that's going to impress Roxanne. It's such a gamble. But we can kind of see where he thought it might work. And it's, all, it's, it's the super overreaction that uh, comes slamming down. However, Pete then gives Goofy some terrible advice which kind of steers Goofy off onto the wrong track and because he's communicating with Pete, or at least letting Pete lecture him, which is not the same thing he doesn't talk to Max and just goes straight into, I know what I'm going to know what's best because I'm in the role of parent mode and just initiates uh, effectively a cross-country intervention with his wayward son
2: Do you need a break from modern living, do you long to shed your weary load? If your nerves are raw and your brain is fried, just grab a friend and take a ride together up on the open road. Come on, Maxie!
4: (laughs) (laughs) All in all, I'd rather have detention. All in all, I'd rather eat a toad. An old man drives like such a club that I'm about to hurl my guts directly upon the open road.
2: There's nothing can upset me, cause now we're on our way. Our trusty map will guide us straight and through. Roxanne, please don't forget me. I will return someday, though I may be in traction when I do. Max relaxin' like the
4: orb, standing, dragging breath the and muddy, muddy kind of man. I think I may have see that highway. I could cry. You know, that's funny.
2: So, could I just be an out on the open road?
7: So, what does Pete advise him? Keep him under your thumb. You're the boss, yeah, keep it that way. And that's that's one of, another thing that was fascinating to me is that like i I knew these parents. i I had heard those conversations between different parents on the block about how to raise your kids. So like just seeing that reflected in a movie about Goofy and Pete character, like, you know, Pete is a character that was like predates Mickey Mouse and just to see him having realistic human emotions mm. and uh, pettiness. Was fascinating. Yeah, he's a
0: Christopher McDonald type. Like, yeah, he's just like a a rubbish father that honestly, I started to really feel for PJ once I started uh, being, uh, having it highlighted that Pete is. Psychologically abusive to his son, like he he erodes his son's sense of self confidence in a weird kind of I win way. It's like he's it's it's the same as uh, uh, Homer and Flanders, only Flanders is the good version of Homer and is really kind to his kids and provides for his family all the time and they seem to have an idyllic life from over Homer's side of the fence. At least he was in early episodes of The Simpsons. Later on it was Daddy says dice are wicked! Whereas here uh, Pete later on turns up in this incredible uh, you know roving hotel of an RV and it stamps on top of Goofy's tent so that he's literally underneath it uh, completely eclipsed by this Providence for his family. Who, by the way, uh, they they didn't have time or space to really feature. There is actually another kid and a mother figure in Pete's family. Also, a cat. He's a cat that owns a cat. It's that thing. The father who believes in spare the rod and spoil the child, which we also found out is a mistranslation. It comes from a French expression, and what they mean by rod is shepherd's crook, as in to guide and move the sheep around, not to smash them with.
1: I think it, it originates in the Bible. Right. And the it's the, the misunderstanding of what the Hebrew term for rod refers right. to. Right,
0: Hebrew, not French. Sorry, I was thinking of the glass slippers of Cinderella. Mm. But yeah, uh, so Pete stands as this maybe a little bit too uncomfortably accurate version of a emotionally distant father who only represents... Well, when he and Goofy butt heads, Goofy says, my son loves me, and Pete says, to counter, as though this somehow trumps it, my son respects me, when the reality is my son fears me.
7: And that, that scene that scene right there, That I love that scene so much. And this, the way Goofy says... Yeah. Each line is so biting what they think about each other and that yeah is yeah but he doesn't love you. It just the 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 way he says it is just mm-hmm. like I can't believe this is in a Disney movie and that lighting when they're in the hot tub with the blue lights under them and just oh I love that I love that bit. Mm.
1: There is something about Goofy's expression at that point that suggests a a very mature emotion to have in a Disney movie, which is that he feels sorry for PJ, but he can't do anything about it.
2: Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I felt that
6: watching
0: this. Dan, you were going to say something.
6: We're discussing all the things that are quite terrible about the way that Pete handles parenting and deals with his son. Just the really kind of abusive relationship there is there, but I... I love that there even with Pete, even within that, there is a cohesion of a worldview that Pete has here that like all fits together and feels like a it still feels like it comes from a human place. Like he is Pete is not just cartoonishly evil person who's going to do just the thing that hurts somebody just for fun because he's the evil person and he wants to. Like you can sense a history and an understanding and just a really flawed understanding. Mm. Uh, of the world and how you were supposed to interact with people and what you're supposed to be with, like do with people and it made like there's it can be rooted in selfishness or other self-serving type things you can sense a character and a perspective from Pete that while you don't and probably shouldn't agree with it it's one that still feels true and feels like something that that character does actually believe like it, the only reason that Goofy and Pete can have a sort of philosophical parenting argument in a hot tub halfway through this movie is because they are like, it is coming from just two characters seeing the world in a different way, not just one character who is here to say and do the wrong and bad, the obviously wrong and bad thing every time. And I really love that. That is the kind of attention to character that makes it feel like a person and people and makes that conversation feel weighty. Hmm.
9: The
1: plot serves the characters rather than the characters serving the plot.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pete, every every time Pete says something horrible, you can feel that it doesn't come out of hatred. It comes out of hurt. Like he's hurt that Goofy and his son get along because he knows he can never have that with his son. That whole conversation about my son respects me uh, is like he he knows his son doesn't love him. That's not a question in his mind. And you know, we talked. You know, Kevin talked about how. They decided there wasn't room for Peg and Pistol, his wife and daughter. But it, in the movie, it really feels like they're not around anymore. They weren't just off screen. It feels like something happened. The family split up because Ooh. you you can see Pete in the movie like it doesn't seem like they'd want to stick around, and something happened where one child went with the mom, one child went with the dad. So and, the RV um, is
0: wild over compensation, especially because it has oh yeah. all that room for only two people.
7: Oh yeah, and you can and you can feel that uh, maybe. PJ didn't want to it to happen that way. I mean he didn't want to go with dad, and dad knows that. And and he's hurt, and that causes him to try and hurt other people so that they feel the same as him. And and it it's this weird deep emotion to come from a character that started off as a bear that chased a live-action girl in the Alice comedies. Hmm. Like Pete's Pete's been in every every version of Disney. Like then he became like a dog that chased Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and then he became a cat that chased uh, Mickey Mouse. And he just evolved from like he was literally just a cartoon bear in a um, in a cowboy hat. And now he's this character that has these deep emotions that cause him to lash out at people in a hot tub. And I don't know. It's just
6: so weird. And now he's working as like muscle for Maleficent in Kingdom Hearts games. So like, Pete contains multitudes. <laughs> oh, he
0: does. <laughs> I once asked Dan to try to explain the Kingdom Hearts games to us, and went
6: cross-eyed. <laughs> it's an impossible task. I, I am really sorry. I'm really enjoying just digging into Pete here on. a little bit. Like the like the distance that Pete that Goofy and Max are having. Like just this, this lack of communication, lack of understanding. Like it's more or less the same one that Pete and PJ have. Pete doesn't realize that distance is there or that it's not supposed to be or that it's unhealthy for it to be. Like Pete is oblivious to the harm that he is doing to PJ and just because he just can't see it, he thinks he's doing a great job. Goofy is tr- is trying, but it's just having a difficult time bridging that gap. Younger me would see the scene, I know we've kind of jumped ahead a lot, but like younger me would see this scene of Pete starting to walk in, From the RV into the Neptune Hotel room, and overhearing Max and PJ talking about the lie that Max told, and. Seeing Pete's reaction to that, where he's just sort of like, you see this sort of like little sneer and smile as he like hears this is like, oh, I've just got this information. Younger me sees that and thinks like, oh, like evil mean Pete, who's just sort of just a crappy guy is like, he's got information. He can't wait to go tell on somebody and just like deliver this news and ruin someone's day. Whereas like now adult me can now like, especially with the help of seeing like uh, other very intelligent people like Lauren Reedus and others talking more about this film can recognize that. In the previous scene we saw pete seeing goofy and max interact and being buddy buddy and just being completely baffled and not even not understanding what he is seeing this is in no way similar to what he sees in himself and pj so in his mind he assumes the kids manipulating him to like it has to remind goofy keep him under your thumb this like this he's playing you you don't see what's happening here and then so when he later walks in and overhears max is playing him that is such validation for pete that is like i was right i knew i was right he does feel a little bad about that he's going to make goofy sad here a little bit but that is not going to stop him and he still feels like it is my i'm going to do the duty that i should and i'm going to help my fellow parent here Mm. like this is an important talk like i can feel sincerity sincerely held beliefs in pete in this i love how much that grounds everybody
1: Mm. the discrepancy between their parenting styles as well is it it again gives us some of a way to look at goofy's approach as a as a good father as somebody who is teaching his child how to deal with the world after their relationship and outside their relationship because if you think about the fact that goofy focuses on a relationship with Max that's built on love, that means what he's working on is, I love you and I am teaching you to love me. Whereas with Pete and PJ, Pete's focus is on respect. You respect me. I will teach you to respect me, but I don't respect you. That means that PJ is going to grow up to know how to respect other people, but not to know how to get other people to respect him
6: yeah this all this worldview is something Pete's had handed down to. Like this mm-hmm. is Pete just got this exact same thing, probably from his parents. You can feel the history back there, absolutely. and this whole movie and the whole the drama and the plot of it, it all unfolds just because the goofy and Max can't communicate. And Pete is just sort of this bad influence perspective kind of on Goofy's shoulders saying, no, like no, you can't communicate with your son, nor should you.' He's a gremlin. You communicate to them and they listen. He's he's an obstacle in Goofy's way of understanding how to bridge that gap and actually be able to communicate and listen and hear from his son and be the father that Max is needing.
1: Which is what Goofy is trying to do. In his mind, the purpose of this trip was not to show Max, I will tell you what to do and you will come with me. It's so that they can have some time together and reconnect, which he recognises has lapsed.
6: Yeah, and and I love that. Like, it makes a lot of sense that Goofy would start trying out some of uh, Pete's ideas, though. At the point of the story where he is told, keep him under your thumb, and given that advice, because he's been trying his way, and it has been just going catastrophically wrong every step of the way, and just making things worse. So, like at this point, he's just like, all right, I uh, I can't talk to my son about it. Like, that's like we don't have that relationship, and it's not working. Everything that from my life experience that I know to pull from is only making it worse. I Might as well try this, I guess. And it kind of seems like it works at first.
0: A lot of Goofy's approach to uh, bonding is, this is how I like to have fun, son. So why don't you do this too? And we can both have fun. Which makes me feel like if this was a live action film, it would be one of those Chevy Chase uh, vacation films with Clark and Rusty Griswold. I feel that it would miss that, uh, you know, that, that here is a terrible parent doing a, a bad job that Clark tries to be like. I, f- I feel like it would just be a little simpler as, as kind of a, you know, dad's okay type story. And it, like, Rusty wouldn't be anywhere near as upset as Max, like because he seems to just, like, in the various Rusty incarnations we've seen over the years. So I'm, I'm imagining a film... And, and saying it would be less good. <laughs> that was an like absolutely pointless hypothetical. Also, you know, with John Hughes writing it, maybe John Candy would be in it, and it would be really good.
6: I think you are actually touching on something here, though. Like, I think there is... This film would not work as well if it wasn't animated, and it wouldn't hmm. work as well if it wasn't a musical. Family Vacation, those Chevy Chase movies those are really cartoonish Mm -hmm. as it is but there is a level of exaggeration of character and uh, exaggeration and simplicity in character like kind of a directness and clarity that animation and these sort of more cartoony characters can tap into and get into that is then only further amplified by it being a musical where they can sing about their emotions Mm -hmm. and the world can be a little bit fanciful as it needs to be to enable like to accommodate the sort of story that these characters are going through. There's something about that that I think makes this movie land and work way more effectively than it po- than it maybe could in live action not being a musical.
1: It's got a little bit of that once more with feeling element to it whereby the part of what is causing problems for Goofy and Max is that they don't communicate in two ways with each other. Goofy, like like Alex was saying, Goofy says to Max, this is what I enjoy. Let's go do that together and then we can bond that way. But he never says to Max, what do you enjoy? Let's try doing that. He's
0: taking him on a fishing trip, which is a really good shorthand for kids being like, oh, I just want to play my Game Boy. <laughs> yep. um,
1: but also Max never says to Goofy, well, hang on a minute. There's this party tomorrow night. How about if I go to that and then afterwards we can go on the trip? Because it doesn't occur to him to say that it doesn't occur to him that he can question. He starts,
0: but Goofy's not listening, and they are already off full pelt. Uh, We they 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 stop by Roxanne, and it becomes clear that she definitely likes Max. And actually, Sharon, you had a question regarding Stacy, and it was kind of a what does Stacy do in that this is the girl who was six uh, in blossom uh, in in a way that sort of lets us understand a bit more about Roxanne so. Well,
1: yeah I mean my my thoughts around that were that the the female characters in uh, films of this type are very often just not exactly sidelined but but we don't we don't see their perspective and we certainly don't tend to see much of the perspective of their their sidekick friends so what in terms of being extra characters within the context of the story what does stacy bring to the table that expands on that that side of it
6: i feel like having stacy there is a vital ingredient in what makes Roxanne as a character work, and I think a huge part, I think Stacy's invisibly a huge part of why Roxanne, like, just hits such a chord with so many people of, like, it's really hard to not have a crush on Roxanne with Max when you watch this movie, because Roxanne's pretty adorable in part because she actually also feels like a Re- she gets to actually feel a bit like a character and a real person who has a life when they are not on screen in front of our main character. Mm. They have it like because Stacy is there most of the time. We're seeing Roxanne, especially early on. It is with Stacy, and they're talking and like communicating about whatever they're doing. Mm. St- it's Stacy who sees Roxanne looking over and kind of like paying attention to Max, like over at the like in trouble at the principal's office. And it's Stacy that like pushes her to like go over there, go over there and talk to him. You I love that we're like Roxanne is not just the like kind of perfect confidence, like love interest. She's also kind of awkward there and uncomfortable. It doesn't know how to sort of open communication with Max. Like there's humanity in there and imperfection in there that just feels very real and teenager. Mm. And I think Stacy being there to both push her when you get the sense that maybe Roxanne wouldn't have gone and talked to Max on her own. But also just being there to like be the friend that Roxanne is hanging out with, like, that gives, gives her a sense of a larger life out, just outside of frame, really adds a lot, I think.
1: Yeah, their dynamic yeah, and- actually re- reminds me a little bit of... Uh, Tara Reid and uh, Natasha Leon Leon in American Pie
0: what do you mean the 44 year old <laughs> mother of Natasha Leon's character who has somehow body swapped with her teenage daughter <laughs> yeah. and is so much mature than every other kid in that high school
1: indeed sorry Ryan you were going to say something
7: yeah like any other like director like the, the laziest thing to do would just be to make Roxanne like the most beautiful girl in school that everybody wants and, and Max could never imagine being with her but this is his chance to to make it happen Mm. but like it shows from the very beginning like she's an awkward dork who likes him too everybody in this movie is an awkward dork who wants other people to like him and but nobody knows how to communicate and that's that's what is going all the way through like we were talking about the decision to, to go on the the trip with this lie like he could have just said i got in trouble because of that dance i did for you and that would have been an idea or like that's why i have to go on this trip or, you know, just even if he's too awkward to say that I did for you, just like remember that cool dance I did? Yeah, I got busted. Now I I, I can't go out like that would have made him expanded his legend more. Um, and so, yeah, that's it's it just, you know, Stacy is the one that illustrates that about Roxanne, that she's like pushing Roxanne to like, come on, let's all communicate here. Let's talk about our feelings like you go talk to him. Talk to, me, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. I I didn't realize that was
6: Dante Bosco until literally yesterday. Oh! <laughs> That's delightful. Why? Sorry, just a random throwaway line. But, like, I love that, like, uh, that thing that you were, like, just saying a second ago, Ryan. Like, in a worse film that was presenting Roxanne as just sort of the perfect pretty girl in school who everyone adores, who is just sort of an objective and is not actually a real person uh, with any actual humanity or story like the fact that that miscommunication that happens between max and roxanne when which ultimately results in max telling the big lie is that you can sincerely feel like see and feel the huge like kind of crushing disappointment in that she feels when max tells her that he can't make the date like you can sense that like this was something that really meant a lot to her that is now that's like this just emotionally kind of wrecks her and she is just really down and trying to like kind of escape the conversation and say like it's okay i'm fine i'm sure i can find someone else like she's not punishing him (laughs) like it's that those lines aren't there as a vindictive like ah you've failed in this courting of, of the prettiest girl in school and now she's going to go with somebody else
4: i'm really looking forward to it max yeah i was too was you
3: see, my dad's on this stupid father-son kicking. Well,
2: don't worry about it, Max. It's just a dumb party. No, it's not. It, Roxanne, I really wanted to go with you. I, no, I, Max, I understand. But my dad you surprised really, me. Okay. I don't you even want to go, but I have no I'm choice. I'm sure I
10: can find someone else.
6: Someone else? She really cared, and this meant a lot to her, and this is really like bumming her out. And that kind of rush to get out of that really hard conversation and have some space and be alone for a minute is part of what starts putting the conversation off so quickly that then pushes Max to in desperation say something incredibly stupid. Your dad's taking you
2: clear across the country just to see a concert? Snooze Powerline. They they used to play together in, in a band. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Oh. Uh, just a minute. <laughs> you party animal you. You're really serious? Absolutely. So uh You aren't still thinking of going with someone else, are you? Well, I guess. Because I was hoping I could uh, wave to you on stage when we join Powerline for the final number. This is incredible.
6: Well, I wouldn't miss our date for anything that wasn't incredible, Roxanne. It's coming from her from a real place and from a a human and understandable place. She also feels like a real character there in that scene.
0: Uh, notably there's a contrast there with his version of her in his dream where he has putrefied her too she's a goddess as opposed to just a, a girl who's filled with anxiety just like him
6: so genuine all of these characters feel so genuine like one of the best animators i've ever worked with had i remember like he had a sticky note on his monitor all the time basically that just simply said sincerity is believability And this was sort of like an acting note when trying to get into your character's head that like if you are building this, like if you can bake sincerity into your character's acting performance, make it really feel like they are genuinely feeling a way that they are in the moment, that they're not like above it. They're not winking to the audience. They are not just sort of putting on a cliched like uh, emotion in any given moment. But if you're feeling like when you are seeing an expression on that character, you are looking into their soul and seeing something real and a real emotion, then the audience will believe it and they will get invested and they will feel it too. And it's such a good character note. And like, and I cannot stop thinking about that sticky note of sincerity is believability with all of these character performances, even if they are like very... Like this is not a subtle movie in any way. It's very surface level with lots of things, but there is so much richness in there because all everything, every character says and feels seems to be so sincerely felt and from a worldview. And they they all feel like complete people. I feel like that's in part why what makes this movie emotionally
7: land. And just as an example of how much thought was put into the emotion of these characters, like I just now I was I'm I, right now I'm looking at a picture of PJ from Goof Troop, and a picture of PJ from a Goofy movie, and just, you know, Kevin was talking about how they changed the designs, and if you look at PJ in the show, um, everything is pointing upward, like his, his his look is he wears this big, like, neon blue jacket with the collar popped up, his ears are popped up, his, his uh, cheeks are pointed upward, like, everything is, like, pointed up, because he's just, he's just, like, the happy sidekick that's just there to, like, Max needs someone to talk to uh, in order to explain story beats because we can't afford to animate what he's going to about to do in the movie. All of a sudden his ears are always hanging down. His cheeks are like sagging into his chest. And instead of that collar pointed up, like he has these shoulders that just slope down. And just the second you see him appear on screen, you're like, Oh, he has been through some stuff. We were talking about his lack of confidence and how his father's treated him. Like you can see it. The second he appears on screen before he speaks, uh, about what has happened to him and like in between the the show and the movie and how much his confidence has changed and all throughout the movie his performance and his writing carry that through and just every character i think has that kind of care put into them you want to see them and know what they're thinking not just the story beats and that's why even though we can make fun of the bad decisions and poor motivations uh that these characters have you really feel that they made the like I feel Max made that stupid decision. It doesn't bother me. I'm watching it being like, why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. But whereas in another movie, I'd be like, that's bad writing. I'd be like, yep, he's gotten to a point where he'd do something that stupid.
6: Yeah, like that's what the character would do. You understand completely why each character is making bad decisions as they make them. Even if you can see that's a bad decision, and sometimes the character knows it's a bad decision too. Max knows it's a bad decision to make that lie the instant it comes out of his mouth. Hmm. I'm in deep sludge. But you understand completely where that emotionally came from.
0: There's a uh, a Bigfoot crisis in this movie. Out of absolutely nowhere, <laughs> they... Actually, when we were watching this, I went, hang on a second, hang on, hang on, hang on. Everyone in this America is a dog, or in the case of Pete, I, I didn't realise until... Recently, watching him closely, he's a cat. And I was I have thought Pete was a dog my entire life. So everyone's a dog. Every single person in this America that they meet is also a dog. But Donald Duck and, and Mickey are both in this as well. And Donald Duck is connected to DuckTales. And the modern version of DuckTales wanted to do, with Donald, what the, a goofy movie did with Goofy, which is a, a wonderful little heritage to pass forward. Modern version of DuckTales, absolutely fantastic. But in Duckburg, everyone's a duck or a dog. So where are all the ducks and, and mice and everyone else in this version of America? Do they all have their own America? It's a stupid friggin' YouTube thing. And it's, very, like, very <laughs> segregated. it's, it's pulling too far on the threads and uh, it, you, you can't have fun that way. Boy, I hope somebody got fired for that one. Anyway, (laughs) but there's a Bigfoot crisis that brings about the high dad soup moment that actually got me choked up. And I realized on the spot that since so much of this movie is about communication, Goofy, as a father, is trying to bring Max back, even without knowing it, to a time when the communication was simple he just needed to say hi dad in alphabet soup and they didn't have big things to hide from each other big emotions that they felt ashamed of Uh, it's the simplicity of that moment gets to you and I feel like had I seen that as a little kid because I didn't see it until my 20s but had I seen that as a kid I probably would have got a pang of that as well I did not have a good relationship with my father especially as a teenager around about the time this film was released it was going close to meltdown and i recall when i hit the age of 13 he took me to one side and said you you know until now you've uh, been behind your mother's apron you're mine now. You're mine now. Those three words, and I was like, "That is such a weird thing to say to a kid." Even at the age of thirteen, I was like, "That's weird. This is a weird guy."
6: <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 much. That that'd be a bit much from Pete.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it's it's cartoonish, but my father and I feel like Pete as well are the kind of guys who would watch uh, Whiplash with. Um, The always fantastic J.K. Simmons playing a horrendously abusive jazz teacher, uh, Fletcher, in that. And then at the end, when drummer boy knows how to drum really, really well, they can pat themselves on the back and say, See, I knew it. Being really, really hard on the boy, throwing cymbals at his head, paid off. Look how good he is at the drumming. And even Damien Chazelle, the, uh, the director of that film, is like, no, no, that's, that's not what I meant at all. Like, it, there's a, a triumph in there, but it's a dark triumph, and this Andrew, the little drummer boy, played by Miles Teller, is not bound for good things as a result. Consequently, whenever I see father-son bonding where the father actually reaches out and is emotional, I get choked up, not because I remember my father, but because of the absence of those moments for me. I had to resolve to either replicate that or modulate that to be a father to my kid. And um, I've gone out of my way with Will to uh, try to communicate, even when I'm angry, just to say, Will, just so you know, I'm angry because of this, this, and this. So even though I'm angry at the moment, I'm not angry at you just so that they won't be scared and I think it's worked because when they get angry they say I'm angry because of this this and this but I'm not angry at you which seems to have we've we've sort of sidestepped the whole I'm not an to be born teenage <laughs> phase <laughs> <laughs> where everyone's super obnoxious we, well,
1: I'm keeping my fingers crossed at this point because we do still have it's about 18 months to go like we're yeah. not quite out <laughs> yeah. the window yet I've, I've
7: watched this hormones. movie the moment he says I just wanted to be part of it I've seen this movie hundreds of times I still (laughs) cry every time he says I just wanted to be part of it and like I watch it so much now that like sometimes like when I'm um, like I'll play it when I'm working and I'll like I'll watch the movie like in Spanish or like because on Disney Plus like you can play like the audio for every language I watched like preparing for this episode I watched it in Korean just because like I wanted to see it fresh and like I've seen it so many times that like I don't need to watch Goofy Movie to watch Goofy Movie I can just close my eyes and just watch a Goofy Movie <laughs> so I watched it in Korean and even still when he said that line I started crying The everything's built up to having that emotion and being able to feel it
6: yeah Can we just like appreciate how stellar the voice cast does in this? Especially I want to give like huge hats off to Bill Farmer and Jim Cummings playing two old cartoon characters who were not built and designed with the kind of emotional drama work in mind Mm -hmm. that has to happen in this film. Some of the scenes of the, like the scenes of these two dads talking feel so natural and effortlessly true to the character while still feeling very real. And it grounds the drama and the sort of like tension of the conversation in a realness that still definitely like can feel uncomfortable even though you are, you have to remind yourself that you're sometimes that you are watching Pete the cat and Goofy the dog in a hot tub arguing about parenting. Just the tension of the moment and the conversation they're having and just the two worldviews clashing feels very real and beautifully performed by these two
7: incredible actors. Mm. There's a, a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Hope Gap. Has anybody heard of that? I haven't, no. It's like a, it's a divorce drama with Bill Nye and Annette Benning. Just in the middle of the movie, all of a sudden Nye and Benning say, He's growing up now, he has his own life and the other one says, I know that. I just want to be part of it and I'm like, You just wait. That's, that's from the goofy, <laughs> goofy movie. movie. <laughs> so like that's how that's how like grounded this dialogue is is mm. that it can show up in a uh, an English divorce drama in 2019. <laughs> oh,
0: Also, uh, when we were watching it, Will was like, why do I know Max's voice? Why do I know that? And I, I did some digging and found it. Jason Marsden as Maximilian Max Goof was Haku in Spirited Away. So Jason Marsden was the male lead in the English language version of the greatest animated film ever made and Spirited Away.
7: <laughs> uh, excellent. <laughs> so I was getting get ready to jump on you for that, but yeah,
0: <laughs> no. Uh, it's it's a pretty close tie. But uh, Spirited Away has, and we'll be talking about this as we reach the end of our Ghibli season, where that's going to be the the kappa. We have that's the one we haven't recorded yet. That that has one of the greatest English dubs of all time for an anime. It's just it's impeccable, and. Haku is a fantastic character, so I'm going to extend this one to uh, uh, Jason Marsden for being able to embody both of these guys. And in lesser hands or uh, in a lesser mouth, Max would be downright loathsome. There's there's like, he could... The, in the 90s, the amount of kid power that slew out of Home Alone and the amount of these little disgusting snot kids... That were just precocious and radical, <laughs> Max. If nothing else, could just get lost in a sea of mediocrity. But you, you, you feel for him, and it's it's almost like the depths of his lies and the preposterousness, and the immediately realizing why did I lie about this and why, like the subterfuge with the map and his being able to get across the guilt. It's not just, obviously, the voice, because the animation is really on point for showing just that one scene where Max is rooting around in the glove box. Fate drops the map and then the pencil into his hand and goes, go on then, you can change this right now. You have the power.
6: Any scene that involves that map, you could cut the dramatic tension with a knife. like mm. It's just riveting, it's, <laughs> often without dialogue.
0: Yeah, and it's great visual with storytelling the, as well with that 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 pond with the big fish in it that no kid would like but they'd know exactly what the difference is between that and Los Angeles.
7: And every time the map's involved, there's that um, that light from the glove box mm. that just makes the most dramatic lighting possible. You could never get away with it, lighting that dramatic in a um, live-action film but just like everything's blue and that Bright orange light shines out at like whoever's looking at the map. Yes, yeah. like the dramatic dev- color work in this film is gorgeous. I love it.
1: It's like the devil opening a treasure chest and going, "Go on, it's yours. All you have to do is sign."
0: Yes, <laughs> come
6: on, Bard. Great score She's
1: so rich. <laughs> <laughs>
6: There's one observation that was that uh, I mentioned uh, to Nrifik Tariq earlier, and there's one observation that he made about the hi dad uh, soup scene that I really loved. That, like, at the end of it, when Max does hand the cup over and he has spelled out words in it uh, after that little conversation, and it means the world to Goofy to see, like, he doesn't say, I love you. He says, hi dad. Mm Because, like, they're not at that point in the relationship where Max is ready to be, like, that vulnerable or be that open. Like, They're not there yet, communications-wise, but Max can show that, like, I also remember this thing that meant a lot to you. I can communicate in this little way to you that that mattered to me, too, and I remember it, and you mattered to me. Like, it's a small gesture that is the best he can do right now at this point where they are in the story that, for Goofy, just means everything.
1: It does, that that moment, and um, a bit later on where they've, again, had a, a very tense Interaction and then end up lapsing into from silence into singing with each other. Mm. They both feel very authentic in terms of tensions in real life relationships, not in dramatic Hollywood relationships where you have a falling out and then there's a big bringing of all the truths to the table, and then once the air is clear, then we can have the moment of reconciliation. That is more often than not not what happens in real life relationships it's it's more like you have the strain and then you have a period of, of separation and then there has to be something that reminds the people involved what it is that they're trying to fix that the relationship is important and that needs to be something which is uh, connective for both of you or all of you if there's more than two people involved but not necessarily alluding back to the confrontation. It needs to be something that's relatively neutral and and that everybody can come to with a positive mindset. Then once that connection's been re-established, you can go on to the, okay, now let's talk about the thing that we fell out about in the first place, because we do still need to resolve that. Um, But that felt really heartfelt and real to me and also the, the spelling out of the words obviously there's the fact that it's a, a particular point of connection for them specifically but also um, it, my experience with, uh, with, with our kid with Will when they were a little bit younger and we would have a, a falling out about something. The way of reconciling was often notes pushed under the bedroom door, mm-hmm. and just a, it didn't have to be a, a great deal of detail. Just a little. I'm sorry, I said da da da. Let me know when you're feeling better. Lo-fi texting. Absolutely. And there, and now, <laughs> it, like now that, that technology is involved, it's, it's expanded on that. But the point being that that being able to read something is often. It, it takes some of the emotional sting out of having to communicate verbally. Mm. It allows the the point of what you're trying to say to go back and forth without it carrying all of this baggage about how you say it or the expression on your face when you say it or the way you're standing when you say it. And it just brings it down to this is the thing that I want to communicate is a very, very simple message. Mm.
0: One of the only uh, parts of the film that I would change is when Goofy has been told the bad news by Pete, your son changed the map, and drives at full speed at an intersection, (laughs) aiming for the middle, and says, Max, you got to make a choice, son, and rather than just saying, well, I figure we can go right, that's probably where the lake is, right, and just making sure that they're on a safe track. And, and, you know, it thus becomes kind of a trolley problem for Max where he has to say something in order to drag them left to L.A. He has to say something to make them go right or left. Effectively, Goofy is putting his son in charge of the wheel and Max has a panic attack. It's crazy. And if this was anyone more responsible than Goofy, I would be incredibly uh, disappointed with him.
2: Well, here you go, Navigator. Just follow my route on the map, son. Okay. Um Here comes our junction. Okay, Max, now this is it. Left or right? Um.
0: But it's Goofy, so it's it's you. You kind of let it slide. I mean, I I went into this knowing that I did not want to criticize the movie itself. But if I were going to change any one thing, it would just be have Goofy almost planning too much, saying, "I'm just going to go to the right here unless you tell me otherwise."
6: I can sort of see that. Yeah, like the, There is something that does feel manipulative. In that moment, right there, like a like Goofy has information and knowledge, and he is oh, he's testing forcing yeah. and he's testing it basically. It like and it, in a kind of dangerous way that, especially in live action, is like wow, this that's irresponsible. Mm. <laughs> like we're we're not cartoon characters; we could die. Even in this, what I think could you could argue that this I think is a fair mistake on Goofy's part. Mm. Like it's one out of desperation, and you can read this both as goofy testing max saying i'm giving you one more chance to be honest with me Mm. or you can read it as sort of just goofy just desperately or we both explode in a giant orange fireball (laughs) Yeah, yeah you just like you could read it as goofy desperately hoping like goofy has already seen and just is just emotionally crushed by the fact that his son has lied to him and that the distance between them is that great greater than he even knew and that he just doesn't feel like he knows his son at all at all and this is just one last hope basically on Mm. his part of just like maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm wrong wrong about this maybe this is not what max has been doing maybe this is a misunderstanding i will continue demonstrating the trust that i promised i'd give my son Mm. and let him take charge in this and i kind of feel like goofy in this moment does firmly believe that that if he just like if it's his emotions and his anger at, at in the wake of Max saying left and steering them toward L.A. If that just emotion hadn't taken over, he'd have kept driving that way and just felt awful and angry. And it like eventually they'd end up in L.A. and they'd have to have a conversation. But Goofy's desperately wanting to maintain to keep that trust going and keep holding it, even though he knows he's been lied to already.
7: Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that that scene because it, it Goofy's just desperate. He needs to know if he makes the decision. And, like, realizes Max went along with it because Max figured out he knows he would have never known. And the way they set up that scene with, like, following Goofy's face as he goes to bed and then just, like, turning the camera and without cutting, like, Goofy's driving the car in the exact same position with the exact same expression. Like, he hasn't slept. It's all he's thought about. And that's all he's been waiting all night and all morning and all drive to find out the answer to this one question. What will Max say? And he just can't, you know he can't do anything until max says what he needs to say and that's why he's he just waits until that last second to turn and then that that's what breaks him and like goofy actually showing a negative emotion for the first time we've probably ever seen goofy show a negative emotion of like anger and but very justified like when he's saying i'm probably too stupid to understand it it's not just that he lied it's just that he knows that this is such a stupid lie Mm. but for him to change the map and then lie to me about it when it's clear we're driving toward a sign that says california this way lake destiny that way i can clearly see the sign for him to lie at that point not only does he not respect me but he just thinks i'm a complete moron Mm. that wouldn't know and so i think that's like it's just max has broken him there is a lot of anxiety on Goofy's part that he is stupid.
0: Uh, this is—it's something that uh, is tacitly within a lot of uh, Pete's psychological abuse of Goofy as well. Like he's called Goofy, he has been known to make a lot of pratfalls, and he's worried that he is stupid. His son thinks he's stupid, and that his lack of obs- observation of Max's descent qualifies that so effectively he was trusting Max to tell him he's wrong in his misgivings of himself
1: Mm, it's it's uh, the intensity of Goofy's response at that point feels a little bit off for him but at the same time you can see that what's underpinning it is is again it's it's like his reaction on the phone to the principal at the beginning it's not so much about Max being a bad person that's, that means he's angry. It's also, it's disappointment, yes, but it's also a fear that he himself has opened this situation up by being the thing he fears he is. Mm-hmm. Stupid, a bad parent.
6: And he's trying so hard. Like, you can understand, like, Goofy's emotions in this. Like, that In the argument that ensues as, as the car's falling off a cliff and, more important, things are happening, really, both characters are just unleashing every frustration and anger they've had at each other like no holds barred just being just outright honest painfully so you can very much feel goofy sort of frustration in this in that he has been trying so hard like that everything he's been doing in this film has been his best understanding of like how trying to figure out what mm. how to help max be there for max communicate with him show him that he loves him build a relationship with him or dear and discipline him as a parent if he must, like whatever is necessary to help Max. Like he's been doing everything he can to, as best he can understand it, but like he's not been listening super well. <laughs> but from his perspective, he's been trying. Hmm. And after all of that, that his son would pull this stunt and lie to him. And yeah, it, it even worse, a lie that is so flimsy and obviously like disprovable that is an insultingly dumb lie. <laughs> is personal insult on top of just kind of the hurtfulness of just the lack of trust. I can't imagine just the math that's been going on in Goofy's head overnight after having that whole experience of being torn over to whether or not to even look at the map. Because like he trusts his son and like I am he's trying to be there for his son. He's trying to be a good father A good father trusts his son. This is like the whole part of the relationship he's trying to build. I'm trying to do my part. I'm trying to show trust. I promise my son I'm not even looking at this map anymore. He's in charge of it. And like hearing that he's been lied to from Pete makes him go and think about it for a second. Mm. And then he's decided, like, he decides, and like, I'm not going to, and is going to leave, but then ends up accidentally seeing the map anyway and is destroyed by it. From there, what does he do? Does he, he can't just go and confront Max and say, hey, you've been lying to me because that, that's not going to help their connection. That it should, One demonstrates the breach of trust, like, hey, I checked and saw that you were lying to me. I did the thing that I said I wasn't going to do. And also it's been an accusation of, hey, you've been, li- you've been lying to me. That's only just going to push Max further away. Really, like this, this fork in the road was kind of like, I'm guessing like the last thing he could think of that could possibly demonstrate, like this one last hope that their relationship is not as bad as it really looks like it is right now now at this point like they're very vocally mean to each other in like in the fight that ensues mm. you can sense from the history they've had together and what we've seen over the course of this film where like you can point to a scene earlier in this film for every sing that like backs up every single barb or at least sort of like speaks to the emotion that they're that they're voicing with every single barb that they mm. deliver
0: it's the only time in the movie i think that goofy himself is actively angry yeah, it's a it's a point where actually just being sad and stopping in his tracks probably would have uh, uh, gotten them more headway. But he's angry at himself for not noticing this sooner, and angry that he failed to. Like it's 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 all coming back on him at this point. So everything he's uh, jibing at Max is technically at himself. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like the, the film takes two what would be terse, kind of unpleasant uh, exchanges if they were spoken, and what you said earlier about it being benefit of it being a musical. the When they're leaving Goof- their hometown and Goofy's singing one song about, you know, really looking forward to doing this, but not listening to the fact that his son is singing another song where he is expressing, I really don't want to be doing this. And after their car falls off a cliff into a river and they float downstream on it like a raft stuck together in a bottle episode, they kind of end up in a sort of a a sour silence that then develops into a song where they reach out to each other, which again is a substitute for a very dark, maybe a bit too real conversation that uh, one might say that family audiences in 1995 weren't ready for.
6: I can see that, yeah, like you can... You can feel that conversation implied. Like the the, the song gets at what where the emotional turn has mm. happened, and then we kind of come back in on the tail end of the conversation where Max has kind of explained the whole story. Mm. After after they've shouted at each other long enough to where one something one of them said kind of got through the anger to where they started communicating sincerely and openly and clearly hurt, and like it's not just anger at each other, but like like, the longing for connection and hurt that Goofy says and the I just wanted to be part of it cracks through to sort of that genuine that's something that max can then hear and recognize and see like kind of just see his dad and as a like as a person finally see through all the goofiness that's been frustrating and embarrassing him you can kind of just sense how that conversation played out whether it just immediately turned to sort of like uh, them being able to just be open and hey we're stuck in a car like talking's all we've got (laughs) to do right now anyway it hadn't even really occurred to me that that conversation could have really just been a very heavy, long, emotionally difficult one that, yeah, that this movie kind of neatly zips through while still giving you the, the emotional payoff of a song.
4: There are times you drive me shall we say bananas and your mind is missing. No offense, a screw. am taken. Still whatever mess I land in, who is always understanding? Nobody else but you.
2: Oh, your moodiness is now and then bewildering And your values may be, so to speak, askew Byzantine, thanks Who deserves a hero's trophy As we face each catastrophe Nobody else but you Nobody else but you It's just our luck we're stuck together, nobody else but you It's
4: crazy enough to believe we'll come through So your jokes are all, let's face it, prehistoric And your music sounds like monkeys in a
2: zoo But when life becomes distressing, Who will
4: I be SOSin' If you're having trouble guessing, here's a clue Though he seems intoxicated He's just highly animated And he's nobody else But nobody else but you We've turned
2: into a true blue duo Hard times we've had a few like we're thrown in the drink. Like we're tossed out of town. But, but when, when I start to sleep, hey, I'd rather go down with nobody else.
4: But why are you? oh you? Aw, Dad.
7: I love that this movie doesn't need to choose whether it's going to have the difficult emotional conversations or like, the goofy slapstick of a goofy cartoon, visual things that would be happening in a cartoon from 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. But with this layer of the dialogue is emotional and it doesn't, neither one kind of takes away from the other that you can have both emotions and both tones at the same time. Mm
6: -hmm. Yeah. And the catharsis still hits, right? Like the conversation doesn't have to be there for us to feel that like catharsis of connection and communication hitting by the end of the song Either way, like we know what all of their frustrations are with each other and all we've been watching them miscommunicate and misunderstand for the entire movie. We know what they need to work through and whatever shape the conversation took that got them from not communicating and understanding each other to understanding each other. Like we don't know exactly how all the dots connected and moves played out, but we know what all needed to get navigated. Mm. And So you can kind of like fill in the blank yourself to how you Imagine that conversation went.
0: We may be un- underestimating audiences at the time, especially if this had actually just gone out on TV, because the actual. It's the province of uh, animated, sorry, non animated. Uh drama comedy from that era. So, you know, uh, Van Oy's own show Blossom and uh, Full House and The Wonder Years. Boy Meets World. <laughs> Boy Meets World, that's the one. Those are the kind of hard conversations that happened in those shows. So oh, even Fresh Prince of Bel Air, the one with Will's
4: dad. I'm
5: sorry,
0: Will.
4: <sighs> you know what actually this works out better for me. You know, it is slimmies a summer come to class wearing next to nothing, you know what I'm Will, saying? Well, it's all right to be angry. Hey, well, why should I be mad? I'm saying, at least he said goodbye this time. I just wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this stupid present.
5: I'm sorry. I, you know, if there was something that I hey, could. Hey, you know do. what? You ain't got to do no,
4: nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm gonna be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good at it too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? You did. Got through my first date without him? Right? Mm. I learned how to drive, I learned how to shave, I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Down with him! I need him then and I don't need him now. Well, well. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm gonna get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey. And I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that. Because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man?
0: This is when they started, you know, getting Emmys and, and treating people like th- this is the stuff you actually go through. It, it was a lot less twee than the seventies.
6: I wonder if this film might have benefited in production from a bit less rigorous executive oversight, like it being mm. one of those like kind of underdog film that's not getting like underdog. this is not Lion King, <laughs> this is not Lion King, this is not Pocahontas. This these are not the big budget ones mm. that we're banking on to be our big huge things maybe these are not just getting reviewed and seen by folks higher up who might see a lot of these really tense, heavier scenes that maybe the kids might get nervous or bored during and like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't have this in the film. Those notes were not coming in nearly so much. And, Heck, the executive, who did seem to have a lot more personal investment in this film, was in the middle of getting fired anyway. So, like, even hmm. toward the end of it, he wasn't there. And the people still in charge were just like, whatever, we'll we'll release the movie out of obligation. Who cares? Oh, my God. Like, is
0: that actually what happened? Uh, if you can... Like, Ryan, check with uh, uh, Kevin Lima. See if there was a certain I, I amount of <laughs> the boss is gone. Let's just make it really, really good and serious and real.
6: Like, it's probably not... Yeah, like, I think... It's probably not that simple, but like I like part of me wonders that the same things that like make Lilo and Stitch and other films that feel like they kind of benefited Mm. from someone wasn't up there, like kind of just telling people they couldn't do something, just giving them huge notes that they couldn't not do and stuff like that. Like, Mm. I wonder if this film benefited from some of that, because it for this time, this feels like even the amount of somewhat tense, dramatic scenes they're doing with these characters. I'm kind of surprised it has them.
7: Not even necessarily like what individual people weren't paying attention, but just the fact that, like, it's a goofy movie. All right. It costs $18 million. Who cares? Just finish it. Or they can say, no one's paying attention. We can make something really interesting and not have to defend all our choices. Hmm. And I'm so glad that they went with the second. Yeah. Yeah.
6: I love that in farming this out production wise to. Like primarily Walt Disney Animation France, uh, the kind of French animation studio Disney had acquired. But also it sounds like five or six other affiliated animation studios just around the world just because their main crew was just so focused on the big films at this time. They unwittingly put their film in some of the best animation hands in the world. France has an incredible animation scene, like scarily good. A lot of the best, coolest looking animated films we're seeing come out in the last in recent years arcane uh the bad guys like the what DreamWorks is doing these days basically like uh the new puss in boots stuff like that was oh, that from france as well that's excellent i have to check with that i have to check with that one i know bad guys is like that's a french uh director co- who comes from like uh goblin like or goblin i don't know what the name of the school just hmm. the school where, where they make scarily good french animators <laughs> it feels like if anything like the French animators are being allowed to run wild now in, in recent years, and we're just seeing just these gorgeous results. There is a quality to the animation of these characters in this film that I think is actually really strong and has just a lot more physical comedy and and just looseness and uh, energy to it that I don't think they'd have gotten if they had animated that in-house with their sort of more regular Burbank or Orlando studios. In Farming It Out to Walt Disney Animation France, if anything, that has probably resulted in a considerably better looking movie.
7: Mm. Yeah, And the other thing that they were trying to do with movie tune studios, is they said that they wanted to like give new talent, test out the new people basically and give them something to do that like, they're not going to mess up, you know, your big blockbuster, but like let them play around with something. And, and you know, some of the movie you can definitely see that like, yeah, there's someone that doesn't know how to animate yet. But like, I feel like with some of especially some of the theatrical ones Sometimes you get, like, this is someone that really wants to prove themselves. And it feels like a lot of the people wanted to do that in a Goofy movie. Mm-hmm. Like, they... Uh, some of the movie tune stuff, they actually had them animated in the theme parks. Because they, they just set up a, a, like, studio inside the theme park. Because, like, people come. They want to see what it looks like when you make an animated film. God, so, they'd hire animators specifically to like <laughs> to, like, entertain. You're basically, like, an entertainer at the theme park. Like, obviously... The big shots aren't going to go sit in the theme park and be stared at, but like you get someone fresh out of CalArts Arts and be like, okay, you're in our, uh, you're in the middle of, of the park studio with a giant window, like you're a gerbil in a cage, and everybody's <laughs> staring at you. It's going to be distracting, so you're not going to do that great a job. So we're not going to let you do like Hunchback, but maybe you can draw like Hunchback Two. Hey. Why am I God, thinking that's...
1: of Jurassic Park? Yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like hell on earth. I, like, <laughs> yeah. I usually the, the artists I've worked with are always frustrated if their desk in the studio is facing like a common thoroughfare or walkway where other people can be looking over their shoulder and like kind of seeing their work as they're working on it or commenting on it or anything else like that. Having that open to just the Disney theme park public and trying to concentrate on your work. Which, like, animation is really concentration-intensive stuff. Sounds like hell. I can't imagine. Yeah. Try, yeah, trying
0: to look at not... your uh, own facial expression in the mirror, but out of the corner of your eye, there are kids with their fish faces plugged up against the window just <laughs> trying to psych you out.
7: And, and imagine <laughs> up just imagine not just the, the windows, distraction say, Draw of Draw Samba!
0: Oh, <laughs> Please do not feed the animators.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Why aren't any of them moving?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Very few uh, uh, movies are animated live. It's a terrible strain on the animator's
7: wrist. Imagine not just the distraction of being stared at, Mm. but the knowledge in your head that the product you're making is secondary to you being an attraction. The the only reason we're making this film is because they need something for us to do for people to watch us animate. And then they're like, I don't know, we might as well put it out on DVD
0: could be fulfilled very ably by an animatronic.
6: It's a move that while on the surface feels like it is sh- demonstrating how much you value the mm. art and artistry that you are that is being done in your studio, it is actually demonstrating just sort of like how little you're valuing like the creative work and process yeah. that like these people are doing
0: It's turning a place of creativity into a zoo mm. Yeah
1: Also tellingly Disney have stopped producing the style of documentary Where you get to see animators doing the thing yeah, they do We
0: don't want anyone yeah. knowing what happened behind the scenes of anything <laughs> Especially if it has got Dwayne Johnson <laughs> My goodness, we'll just have to speculate on that. There's a couple of things I need to mention regarding uh, music, which I noted down. The score for the movie was put together by the Coen Brothers regular composer Carter Burwell, accompanied by Batman the Animated Series composer Shirley Walker on orchestral conducting duties. After that, the composer for The Matrix, Don Davis, was called in to reorchestrate based on Burwell's material, making for an eclectic mix of banjo, percussion, choir, and sweeping symphonics. It is a wonder it's as cohesive as it sounds, but they had. Those are
2: three very
1: different styles. Very different
0: styles (laughs) from very talented people. And it's this weird nexus point of stuff we've been covering because we're currently doing the DC Animated Universe for Shirley Walker, the Coen Brothers for Carter Burwell, and last year we covered all the Matrix films for Don Davis. <laughs> the last section of the film is actually like we've, we've crossed the big emotional hurdle because they've both... Effectively, the, the big song, the reconciliation, is them saying, you do matter to me. You are important to me. And it's noteworthy. This is the first time Goofy says, so what did you actually want to do? Oh, you wanted to go and see uh, Powerline. This, like, It's the first time he's actually really listened to his son. And then he tries to help Max achieve the absolutely impossible by infiltrating this incredibly locked down, <laughs> like A-list musical superstars concert just so that Max's redonkulous
7: lie can somehow become a truth of sorts. There, there's two ways Goofy could have gone with, with that uh, information. One of them is a good climax, but a bad ending, and the other is a uh, the other way around. And so they're like, let's just do both. <laughs> let's make them make the terrible decision first, and then for no apparent reason decide to make the good decision.
6: I like, I like this as a, like, on the one hand, in in reality, outside the fiction of this musical sort of story, going and saying, like, okay, you told a big lie. We're going to we're gonna do some crimes and make it happen <laughs> <laughs> then we're, gonna, we're gonna apologize for later though bad in this movie it's goofy hearing what max is like max's situation is and what max wants and not even just what max needs just what max wants what's really important to max and being all in on like i will help you with it we're like we're doing this what matters to you matters to me and this is really important to you not just for like like getting away with a lie but for making a name for yourself and being out there and like impressing your friends and just your image like something that clearly matters to you and i get it and i'm here to help but then like is still a good enough father that you know a lot of conversations happened on the way there and on the way back that led to them immediately after like getting into the concert and having the fun of the big music number Going back and both agreeing, like, I that Max needs to come clean and tell the truth, and that's going to be really hard. But that's this is the right
7: thing to do. But before you get there, you get some power line, yeah. And,
6: and <laughs> also, we get this cool, it, we, yes. And we get this great concert scene, really well directed with a song that is so darn catchy. Hmm, Evan Campbell.
0: I'm saving eye to eye for the end, so let's play the song we haven't yet, Stand Out. For folks who haven't seen a goofy movie and have somehow gotten this far, this is the one that Max lip syncs to when gate crashing his end of year school assembly. Just imagine the bravery to put your life in the hands of Paulie Shaw. Not a lot of you know this, but I was christened Paul Alexander Shaw, and one of the key reasons I got rid of my first name in 1999,
2: legally,
3: was this guy. Shadow with it
0: He's conscious He's fine, but I don't want his name
3: Open up your eyes, take a look at me Get the picture fixed in your memory I'm driven by the rhythm like the beat of a hawk And I won't stop until I start to stand up matter
0: School of Movies subsists on the cheddar supplied to us by Patreon and our lovely supporters. And everyone in the top tier gets to dance on stage with Powerline. So that's Aaron LeCluze. I'm not doing it in a Paulie Shaw voice. Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler. Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jamus Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vihey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Kimu Hellas-Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns.
3: Thought, of I got it it's a piece of cake. <laughs>
4: notice
6: me anytime i hear that like i will occasionally hear this song in just random places out and about like just little piece of some grocery store with somebody who's clearly in charge of the playlist and knows what's up and anytime <laughs> i see this song play in the wild which is very rarely like there's a notable reaction from people out and about like in the uh who are hearing it oh, who nice. are just like ooh,
0: yeah <laughs> i would love to see that this is like so, to, to look at a room of a thousand people and see which ones turn their heads
7: and go this power line and then start <laughs> pulling shapes. I love this song so much. I do I used to do poetry slams and um that one day there was like a, a poetry slam where y'all you you had to do covers of existing poems and I just went up on stage and I said <laughs> I got I myself, got myself a, notion a notion and the audience <laughs> erupted like it was the most like they knew from the first few words and then I went into like and one I know that you'll understand. And they were screaming, they were out of their chairs. Like, people love it. That rules. <laughs> I love that.
0: This reminds me of, I think it was either Rihanna or Alicia Keys. It was Alicia started playing very somber piano at one of her uh, uh, live shows. Like, it, it was, this was not a song on the bill, and it turned out to be Gummy Bears. <laughs> <laughs>
3: courageous and caring, faithful and friendly, with stories to share. A song
0: I love it. Now, Powerline himself was based on three superstar singers at the time. The king of pop, Michael Jackson, who was legally embroiled, uh, and his royal badness, the artist who at the time was formerly known as Prince, but was later known as Prince again, and was, like Mike, a tad eccentric. Both of these legends are now sadly dead. And the third was Bobby Brown. I won't say what he apparently did, uh, because... It's very upsetting, but uh, I would recommend you folks watch the documentary, not necessarily the uh, uh, the biopic that came out recently, but the documentary Whitney, uh, which will probably make you hate Bobby Brown. And I was so relieved to find that it actually, after all these years of thinking that he had in fact voiced the singing uh, performance of Powerline, it's just a very Bobby Brown-ish type performance Uh, mixed, obviously, with MJ and Prince, but um, he was voiced by R&B singer Tevin Campbell, who does a fantastic job.
6: Yeah, I love that this was... that it was Tevin Campbell who did this and played this role, so that we have this character who is embodying all of the pop culture and, like, public uh, charisma of those three pop stars. The parts of those pop stars we enjoyed before realising what they were all getting up to. Yeah. uh, That is influenced by them but it, like separated and from them cleanly so that there's like power line is still a character we could and that we can still enjoy. Yeah fictional characters can't disappoint
0: like, us because that's oh, just bad writing. Voiced
6: by Bobby Brown. Oh, okay. yeah well, that's, that complicates it a bit.
0: Yeah. It's why so many of my heroes are, are fictional because if they if they do disappoint me, they just get a better writer at some point. <laughs> Uh, oh, uh, one other uh, uh, casting choice. This was Pat Buttram's last film, uh, and it was a relationship with Disney stretching back for a long, long time. He was the sheriff of Nottingham. He was Napoleon, the I'm the leader, I say what we're doing dog in The Aristocats. And he was the grizzled old cowpoke in Back to the Future Part 3. Now, yeah, I'm a bit of a slob, but I do my job. One of the most distinctive cowboy voices in it existence and he was the mc at the possum park in this so he he went out doing what he loved
6: perfect casting too yeah
0: any more on a goofy movie okay right the actual actual end is pete doesn't really get a comeuppance in terms of uh you know that, that that's actually going to mend anything between him and his son but he does get to see Goofy and his son on, like, having a whale of a time on stage with Powerline in a way that uh, flabbergasts him. So it's almost like Goofy's sweeping in all the gambling chips to himself at that stage. So I suppose it's 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 a it's a, it's a victory for Goofy rather than what we actually want to see is a, a victory for PJ. Although luckily he does feature in the sequel, an extremely Goofy movie. And it seemed well, Sharon's theory was that the moment PJ gets out from under that thumb, he is just pulling an all-nighter and, and like going completely crazy.
6: And further reinforcing a thing that we kind of said earlier about Roxanne. I love that. Like she at the party, she and uh, Stacy both, when they are dancing along to the music, they Mm. are not like, there's nothing about about either of them that is up on a pedestal and like perfect hot girl. Like they're not dancing prettily or super cool, (laughs) dorky dancing along with everybody else. Just Mm. like complete nerds and just having a great time. Like, which just feels just very genuine and real. And I, I don't know. I love it. I do like
0: every all of those little shots of Stacey where whenever she sees Roxanne's clearly making goo-goo eyes, she's like, yeah, you like him in that kind of satisfied way. She, she's very much kind of trying to push them together. It it feels like Van Oy could have played an ongoing character. Again, this is why I thought this was all from Goof Troop. They are, They all have so much personality. I was like, well, they've honed this over
6: multiple years. Yeah I feel like you're probably not alone in that sort of sense mm. of lots of people seeing this liking it and feeling like I should check out goof troop and immediately oh, since like finding out a few facts about it and just be like Never mind. This is it's not I, this is not what I <laughs> thought I was getting in for. Yeah. I love how I love how emotionally supportive and of there Stacy is for Roxanne throughout mm. this whole thing.
0: Yeah. It's like it's really sweet. they do that thing where it's like, oh, uh, she can get together with the other friend who is Paulie Shore again, who by the way shops Max right in it. Like they're watching Powerline. It's like. He's not on stage with him. He's a liar. And it's like, oh, his friend, shush. It's so, like, oh, yeah, you, we probably missed him. Who wants some cheese? Who else wants cheese itch?
6: Just not being there for his friend. Yeah. He's
0: a dork. Anyway. Um, but, but yeah, they do the whole friends with him thing, which is, uh, which is, yeah, fine, fine. Ultimately, when Max gets back and Goofy kind of urges him out to... Uh, uh, It's just a talk to Roxanne. It's the usual, I learned you gotta be yourself. But. I feel like it's strengthened by the fact that Roxanne says, I like your laugh. There's elements that we can get just from that, that she really actually sees the person he he genuinely is, as opposed to she's not connecting with any kind of poochified version of him that's out there. So when he goes, and then covers it in shame, it's no longer needed. And we know that at least as an audience, even if Max isn't quite there yet.
6: It's really lovely. This movie is so like on a script level, on, like on a script plotting and just storytelling level, it is so rock solid. Alex, you'd mentioned that you had watched uh, an extremely goofy movie as Mm -hmm. well, kind of in the preparation for this, which I'd never seen. Like, as much as I love this movie, I'd never really made time to watch much of the goof troop or nor did I watch the sequel, and I watched it recently as well. And it is perfectly fine, but it does not have nearly the focused cohesion Mm -hmm. of like kind of character drama and just like here's what these two characters need their objectives how those come into conflict how they like how they need to resolve this sort of difficulty that conversations they need to have there's such a just solid character scripting work done in this film that just impresses me more and more and i get i get more out of it every time i come back to this movie years and years later i am hopefully a little bit more emotionally intelligent than i was last time every so every time i come back to it There is more for me to mine out of this, like more than I get out of a lot of other animated films I loved uh, as a child growing up. I suspect part of why this film has kind of had a resurgence in popularity over time is some of it just nostalgia and other and just word of mouth getting it kind of spread around. But I suspect that it is also a similar case for a lot of other people watching it, that it just it keeps on kind of giving the more you like, the more vocabulary uh, and uh, emotional intelligence—you've developed. Like, there's the more there is to sort of
7: see and mine in it. And I think more and more people are discovering it because every once in a while someone's like, "Oh wait, that wasn't a bit. A goofy movie is actually good," because like <laughs> nobody's just gonna seek out a goofy movie. Like it, it just like I mentioned, it's it's based on something nobody liked. Like it's it's not something that you'd think would be good, but some people like some people on this call are just obsessed with it and like force it on everybody. Everybody's like, all right, I guess I'll check it out. And then they're like, Oh, this is actually good. And it becomes like the secret. That like you have to tell people, like hmm. it's a weird thing to recommend because they're going to think you're either joking or an insane person that you're like, no, you really have to watch a goofy movie. And then when they watch it, they're like, man, how is a goofy movie so good? I thought you were all joking. I thought it was like a community bit that we all do that we've all decided to pretend a goofy movie is good. Yeah, this this
0: isn't a Morbius situation. (laughs) It's it's it's, uh, closer to, and again, this is extremely high praise, when we talked about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when you rediscover that as an adult and you watch it for the first time in ages, you just... Blown away by the technical achievement of it, but just how slick and fun and neat and and, and how much energy there is in absolutely everything. So it's it, 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 this is one of those cases where it absolutely holds up.
6: Like I, I talked earlier about, uh, sincer- like the importance of sincerity in the character performances mm. and how that makes it land. It's a testament to how much more capacity stock characters can have within them if you are allowing them to, if you are willing to extrapolate out from that caricature and try to find kind of the more complex character in there and then be willing to sincerely present it and stick to it and not blink and not try to deflate tension or mm. crack a joke or or break back into sort of like stock caricature to get out of that, just so so that the audience isn't too uncomfortable. Like yeah. Goofy, was not created originally to have this capacity as a character but it existed within him like this this doesn't feel like it is a different goofy than we've known before it feels like goofy in a kind of story that we've just not been shown before even like even in kingdom hearts there's something that is wonderful about the fact that goofy and donald put in a different context kingdom hearts brings different aspects of their characters out aspects that are there and feel true to them but that don't really have a place in the other kinds of stories they're usually in and i think goof troop as a show maybe planted some kind of seeds for folks to kind of get a sense for like oh if i start thinking of goofy as a father and what parenting and fatherhood and all that is like if you just if you start then pulling at the thread from there like how does that relationship work if we start kind of grounding that in reality at real relationships where does that go how does a character like goofy navigate trying to raise his son like you can get some really interesting questions out of that in like if you're willing to actually sincerely go for it and not just like go for the jokes and like duck out of the complex emotional stuff at the first sign of a kid getting bored in the theater
0: if you go for universal uh pains and pressure points and conflicts uh, rather than chasing trends or trying to keep things absolutely now. They could have made... Powerline is very much of his time in terms yeah. of like what he's designed like, but everything around it does still have applicability today. But actually, one thing about this perfectly cromulent sequel, uh, an extremely Goofy movie, which is, is fine. Uh, goofy follows Max to college. There's a scene early on which makes the whole thing worth seeing... If you really like this movie, or if you've only just seen this movie, or if this movie has had an impact, and especially if you are a parent yourself, and especially if you're a parent of someone who's a young teenager, and there's a a certain element of emptiness syndrome just, just on the horizon, and you're thinking about it as a possibility at some point. When Max leaves for college, Goofy goes up to Max's empty room, and to their credit, the makers of this second film just let you sit with him for a while. And it's quiet and it's empty and Max is gone and no one's giving him hi dad mugs anymore and you feel for Goofy, which is testament to how much this movie made you feel and invest in him so that then that payoff can kind of propel him through the rest of the movie, which is like I'm
6: gonna
2: be a mature student (laughs) oh yuck!
6: The sequel does manage to tap into some of that kind of genuine just sort of uh, character emotion stuff here and there. And that and I love that scene, too. That just really is, like, uh, it is, it's very touching.
0: Probably inspirational for a bit of Toy Story 3
7: there, which took that and ran with it. The fact that they pulled this off is, like, what gave me my lifelong... My lifelong dream is to do a Goofy movie. Like, I've, I've gotten to hmm. work on things like Star Trek and Garfield and Popeye, and I'm like, that's great. Those are good things. I every Everyone I work with, I'm always like... Whatever bargain basement crap that you're like, I own the rights to that, that you don't know what to do with, give it to me. <laughs> I want to take something terrible and turn it into something good, like they did with a Goofy movie. But also, with a Goofy movie, Pete's already public domain. Goofy's going to be public domain soon. Oh. We could make a Goofy movie prequel. And there's a lot of elements you can't include, so that's going to make it difficult, which, Kevin, you can do it. Give me a call. All <laughs> right. See what we can do, Kev because we would want no one else to direct it.
6: Speaking of Kevin, I'm so thrilled that part of why I'm happy seeing this movie getting to sort of a a resurgence in popularity is just like I'm happy for all the people who worked on it who get Mm. to see something that they worked on which didn't really get a whole lot of praise or like uh, positive reviewing or just anything in its day. Like seeing it become appreciated and beloved more widely many years later has got to feel extremely good. I'm really happy for all of them.
0: A delayed, well-earned catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. That's validation I think all of us would love. For this last clip, rather than a piece of a Goofy movie, I'm going to bring you forward to the 2017 DuckTales and a conversation you never expected to hear between Donald and Goofy.
5: Well, sounds like
8: they're
2: having a good time. Guess they won't be joining me for the family portrait. I suppose they're just a little mad.
7: Wow!
4: Is it too much to ask to have my family be like other families for once?
2: Donald, in my experience, the best photos are the ones that aren't all staged and pretty. Like this photo of me and Maxie on a roller coaster. I was terrified and almost lost my lunch. <laughs> sure, it was scary. Sure, I got stuck at the top of a loop de loop and Max had to catch me and swing me into a cotton candy stand. But the park gave us free admission for life and all the cotton candy we could eat. And Max and I made a memory. That's just who we are. Is it so wrong to want to be normal? I reckon every family has their own normal.
0: These creators were inspired by the work of Kevin and his team. And right there in Goofy's wallet, there's Max and Roxanne. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up now. Now, where can everyone find your stuff? We will start with Ryan.
7: Uh, you can find everything I do at ryanestrada.com. There's lots of free comics there, information about my stuff that's in bookstores. I have a new book coming out on May 2nd called Occulted. That is the true story of my friend who grew up in a cult that taught her Star Trek was real and Gandhi was a sexy space alien. And it wasn't until she uh, heard the word cult and learned what it means and started reading books she wasn't allowed to that she figured out how to escape. So check that out and check out all my other free comics as well.
6: Dan and i don't write books but i do have two youtube channels about uh one of which is called new frame plus which is a a series just sort of uh talking about uh the craft of animation in video games uh another channel i have is called uh, playframe which is sort of a daily let's play thing that i run with my wife which is just for fun uh we also uh, have a twitch channel called playframe plus where we do much the same thing
0: thank you so so much for coming on at weird times (laughs) To, uh, to to talk about this it has been an absolute joy and uh, we've gotten uh, if you told me a uh, few weeks ago oh yeah goofy movie you can get a good two and a half hour, hours out of that and there will not be an inch of fat <laughs> i'd have gone really but uh, you you did it thank you so so much
6: thank you i'm so thrilled that we finally got to talk about a goofy movie okay Finally, my
0: dream has come true. Right. Well, we shall meet again for something that, uh, that that feels along these lines of special, I'm sure. Yeah. If you've not been following Dan's extended project on the animation of each Final Fantasy game in turn, absolutely, definitely check that out. If you have been following it... You'll be happy to know that his work on Final Fantasy IV encouraged Sharon and I to play the entirety of Final Fantasy IV, and that's what next week's show's about. It's an introduction to the Final Fantasy series, and which ones you should start with besides Four, which just so happens to coincide with the Pixel Remaster Collection launching on Switch and PlayStation 4. And after we finish our show on Final Fantasy as a series and Final Fantasy IV, we have two other major favorite Final Fantasies in upcoming shows. Have a guess what those two are. Let's leave on the power line song, shouldn't we?
6: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Enjoy. Get everyone up and dancing. So, I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's out.